Hey everybody, you're a friendly neighborhood podcast editor, producer, Kado here, uh, with a quick content warning on one of the clips we included from the movie Thief uh, at approximately 2 hours and 17 minutes and 27 seconds. There is a clip from the end of the film that includes a threat of rape and racial slurs. It's a pretty short clip, only about two minutes, so when you hear Rob call out about it, uh, he, he mentions that it's, it's pretty gruesome, so uh, you can skip again ahead two minutes. Apart from that, I hope you all enjoy. Peace. Welcome to Waypoint's Michael Mann Project. I guess we'll call that. We're we're working on a title for the rest of the Waypoint Plus movie podcasts, but uh, this is already going to be kind of an odd uh, series that we're going to be running uh, off and on for the foreseeable future. Uh, we are going to be looking at the films of Michael Mann, uh, and today we are starting with 1981's Thief. Uh, here to help me do that, we've got... Two very good friends of Waypoint. Uh, first, Dia Latina. Hey. And we also welcome from Next Lander, Alex Navarro. Thank you for having me. And also, who called this the Michael Mann Project and not going down the manhole? <laughs> <laughs> that That's a good name. Uh, God, there's so many things you could do with manhole, too. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Yes, there is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so... Michael Mann is a director that, Alex, I think you and I are both just mildly obsessed with. Um, yeah, I would and, call that mild obsession. And I think he's, a, like, there, there's a couple things I believe about uh, Michael Mann. One is that he is extremely easy to underrate because he makes such iconic dude-type movies. Um, mm-hmm. Like, it's it's very easy to see him as sort of the king of the uh, like men's dorm room movie night, uh, you know, where, Oh, he makes, he makes movies about, he makes movies about like guys ripping shit off. Uh, he, you know, if you, there's an easy way to stereotype a uh, thief being a movie about, uh, you know, two bros on the opposite sides of the law, uh, both trying to take down, uh, take each other down. Um, that is, that is one way to read him. But I think one, the body of work is actually much more diverse than that. Like there's a lot more to, uh, man's body of work beyond uh, movies like Heat. And second, I think even in those films that are in some ways stereotypical uh, male-dominated crime epics, I think often there is an eye toward both social critique um, and also critique of masculinity and its relationship to modern life. And I think if you sort of read man at the surface level of, hey, it, like he likes making movies about dudes who are really good at committing crimes, I think you're kind of missing the tragedy that underlies most man films, uh, I'd say. And so I, I tend to think his films both, you know, in, are, are unique in that they're incredibly fun to watch. Um, they are often like best in class procedurals uh, about whatever career uh, happens to be at the center of it. 
Uh, but they also turn out to be really trenchant, co- trenchant commentaries on, uh, on, on modern life. So that I think is why I, I, I keep coming back to man. Like I've sort of grew up on, on man's films and man is one of those directors that at every stage of my life and my relationship to film as a critic, uh, I find that man's work is actually richer than the last time I checked it out. I'm curious what relationship y'all have, uh, to man's movies. My father took me to see The Last of the Mohicans when it came out in theaters because um, he really liked the James Fenimore Cooper books. And, you know, my side of the family were native. And Michael Mann is a great director, even though I had no fucking context for that whatsoever. Um, and then, of course, I mean, you know, Magua's Heart is Twisted is practically a fucking catchphrase for me now because <laughs> I watched that movie so many goddamn times. Um and like from there, it kind of just kind of spiraled out and found what I could, you know, bits and pieces of Miami Vice and, um, you know, a case, I think eventually like Heat came out and I watched that and The Insider Collateral and um, then finally went back years later and caught Manhunter and was just like, nah, this is this is my man. Yep. Man, Manhunter. man. Manhunter is the last. That's another good title. Shit. We're just there's just pearls here. <laughs> uh, manhunting. But yes. I think. I think you you made a really interesting point, Rob, about the like I just kind of briefly like the movie we're about to talk about. It is ultimately a movie about a man fulfilling his Pinterest. <laughs> Jesus, yes, yes. It, he has who knew? God. He, he literally has the 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 teen girl mood board that he, of his dream. Oh, he super does. He oh just happens my sister to had one of those to fulfill in the 80s. that. Yeah. Holy shit. Wow. Yeah. So that's a podcast. Um, yeah. <laughs> All right. That's that's our analysis wrapped. Uh, Alex, I don't know what you what you got before uh, we call it a day here. Uh, let's see here. So I, I definitely the first man I ever saw was probably just like rando episodes of Miami Vice when I was a kid because, yeah. you know, that was the most easily accessible stuff. I think the first movie of his I ever actually saw was Heat. And I saw it. I don't know. I was probably like 14 or 15. And, you know, at that age. There's not really a lot you take away from it other than just sort of like the very surface level dudes rock kind of mentality. But, you know, it was enough to kind of whet my interest and be like, okay, I want to keep watching this guy stuff. I want to go deeper. And I didn't for a long time. But eventually, you know, I I got to the insider. um, I caught Thief and uh, I didn't see Manhunter until many, many years after I'd seen the other Hannibal Lecter uh adaptations and i you know it that that going down that level led to to the like weird hunt of like okay i need to figure out a place i can see the keep you know like i really (laughs) i started trying to see as much of it as i could and there's still a couple i've never seen i never got around to seeing like black hat um but by and large i think i've seen most of his uh oeuvre and i have come to really appreciate one the way that he he at the surface level again a lot of it is very dudes rock but also actually these dudes are miserable and their lives are completely stoic and there is no room for joy anywhere in it uh and also the fact that Michael Mann maybe has the best worst music taste of any working director today man well okay so i would say and i think the problem is he is one of those dudes who had a moment when he was cool yes <laughs> and the moment passed, but actually it's not because 
his taste was overtaken is that he tried to keep up with it. Like, he tried to make his taste keep up with the times. Right. And so, like, in the movie we're about to watch, it's got this, at the time, really divisive, now recognized as iconic, uh, Tangerine Dream soundtrack. Um. And I love this soundtrack, to be clear. I, I think the Tangerine Dream phase of Michael Mann, especially applied to something as completely out of place as something like The Keep, uh, is I, I think that is great. The problem is when he started to graduate to, like, say, the 90s, and he was just pulling stuff out of the CD wallet that was, like, in his, you know, sun visor in his car. And he's just like, ah, uh, Moby. I but see. I think, and the thing is, he just lucks. He lucks into the fact that that Moby track, uh, "God Moving Over the Face of the Waters," at the end of Heat, works for the moment. Yes. Um, but it doesn't change the fact it is Moby whose moment was. Uh, I I don't know. We, we it was nineteen ninety five. That was his moment. Yeah. Yeah. We like, and then it's it's very quickly over overtaken by like him being an incredibly derivative uh artist uh and and also kind of getting a reputation for being a guy who's ripping off other elect- electronic artists um but then he moves on from that and he starts like by the time you get to the collateral soundtrack it's this real mishmash of um he found an audio slave yeah 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 and he goes back to that well for uh his uh, film version of Miami Vice, and it, it's it's tragic that like key iconic moments in both uh, Collateral and Miami Vice are scored by just the worst shit. Um, oh yeah, that non-point cover of In the Air Tonight is maybe one of oh, the biggest God. musical crimes of this century. It's all you had to do. <laughs> yeah, was just use the original. You made I know. it famous. That you just do it. Just re-rack. Just like, you know what we're going to do? We're going to do shots of Ferrari wheels spinning with like neon lights glinting off them while Phil Collins play. It, it's, it, it rocked in like 1985. It's going to rock in like 2008. And it would have. It would have been fine. But instead, he's like got to show that we're, we're with the times. And it just brings that movie to a screeching halt. God damn oh, it. Yeah. Uh, but all of that lies ahead of us. Yes. Uh, so the other thing I'll, I'll get off my chest here about actually, no, well, I'll, I'll save this for the end. Um, so 1981 thief, it is man's first feature film. He had made a, he made a TV movie, uh, about a convict, uh, in, in prison. I can't remember the name of it. Um, but this was this was his first feature, and it was in this interesting point in his career where um he was also about to make this jump to television. Uh, he actually had like two two TV projects were in his near future. Uh, one was Crime Story, a Dennis Farina uh, vehicle. Though that's not kind of an unfair way to unfair way to put it. Uh, Farina was too new to really get a vehicle. Um, he just happened to be extremely well cast uh, in this period again, like crime epic. Uh, set in like 1950s Chicago. And then he also had, uh, you know, as as the years would move on, he also would uh, sort of run Miami Vice uh, starring Don Johnson for a number of years. Um, and his those earlier Miami Vice definitely feel like the most Michael Mann possible TV show, uh, both, both Crime Story and Miami Vice have that reputation. But Thief is the first feature film um that that 
that we get from him. And it is in broad strokes. It is about uh, a ex-convict, James Conn's Frank, who is a master thief in Chicago, but he is also a guy who is basically one strike away from spending the rest of his life in prison, effectively has spent uh, his entire life to date in prison. Um, you know, freedom is, is kind of a, a new thing for him. Uh, d- despite his advanced skills that he picked up in prison from his mentor, Willie Nelson, uh, playing, uh, pr- playing Frank's friend, Okla. Um, and at the start of this film, uh, Frank, one of his jobs brings him to the attention, both of the Chicago police and to a, it's unclear. He feels like an organized crime figure, but more he's like a, a master fence, I guess. He like a a heavily armed middleman. Uh, Leo, uh, played by Robert Prosky, a deceptively grandfatherly, uh, <laughs> harmless looking fellow uh, who arrives in Frank's life with a with an offer to basically put Frank on higher value jobs uh, as long as Frank effectively works for Leo. Um, Frank is initially disinclined to take this offer, but he is a man who also wants to start really living. Um, he wants to settle down, start a family and live a normal life. And in, uh, in a lot of respects and the person that he has sort of latched onto and fixated on, uh, as, as the person who will make that happen is Tuesday. Wells, Jesse, um, And in short order, Frank's going to get the girl. The deal with Leo is going to go sour the moment uh, Frank does a major job for him. And ultimately, Frank, at the end of this film, is going to realize, or at least uh, going to believe, that the only way he can keep someone like Leo from having power over him is to have nothing himself. Uh, It is a man who... Uh, basically, at the start of this film, we'll lay out his philosophy and understanding of his power, the source of his power as uh, a sort of nihilist fatalism. Um, and when the chips are down later in the film, he will return to that and drive both Jesse away and destroy everything Frank has spent his career building uh, in order to be free and and take the fight to Leo. Um, that's the the broad outlines of the of this film. Um, But I think right from the first, one of the things that jumps out at me is this is an exquisite, like to me, it is an exquisitely beautiful film. Uh, It it opens with him on a heist job and there is a shot uh, through this alley in Chicago with the rain driving down uh, street lamps sort of catching, catching the rain. And then you see this like spider web of fire escapes. Uh, stretching up toward the sky as the camera sweeps down uh, into the darkness of the alley. And this is going to, it sort of lays out some of the visual cues for this entire film. Uh, man, man said that one of the things he was trying to do is make the entire film, give the entire film a cold metallic look. Cause so much of this film was about uh, metals and materials and, and material science and knowing how to work with them. Uh, but the other thing that sort of jumped out at me here is if you're familiar with a lot of man's most recent work, he, he really embraced, uh, digital photography, maybe too aggressively, uh, at times, but he was very eager to move on from film. Um, 
And I think on the Miami Vice contract uh, commentary years later, he he did say he always chafed at film, particularly because he is a guy who loves shooting cities at night. But I look at a movie like this, and to me, he also seems to have an incredible eye for night shooting on this film stock, uh, you know, in, in these conditions. But D, I'm curious, uh, do you see, do you see the things he's, he's chafing against here? Um, is the, like, how, what do you make of the photography and the, the visual style uh, so, that, that we see here? So there's a couple of things that I love it, that this is a movie that very prominently is, is it, it is, it is very specifically located in Chicago. Oh and yeah. Yet, like, it doesn't really showcase Chicago, the city at all. Um, one, because it's prohibitively expensive and complicated to shoot um, those kind of big, you know, the kind of big cityscape shots that like we love to do for movies now, especially to like give us a sense of like, no, we're in fucking New York. Look at these big, you know, you know, shots of like Broadway and Times Square and shit like that. We don't have that here. There's no big like long sweeping panoramas or anything like that. There's no skyline really at all. Um, so we get these really gritty parts of like that. Everything about this movie is very zoomed in um, with the shots. And like, I really love this because it is very clearly the reason, you know, Michael Mann embraces digital photography is because it's fucking cheap. Um, <laughs> oh, you, you don't buy you don't buy the uh, argument for aesthetics at all. Oh, I think it's an aesthetic. It's an aesthetic consideration based on cost effectiveness. Um, you can get your shots you want much more readily with a lot like lower overhead with digital cameras. Um, you know, I think it does give man kind of more of a, a harsher edge that he goes for often. But I've watched Last of the Mohicans like. He loves these big, pastoral, beautiful shots just as much as he loves, you know, the kind of look you'd get out of a digital camera. Yeah. Um, so, like, like for for this, all of these shots, they're very cropped. He crops everything with blocking and, like, with shadow. And, like, you know, that cityscape, the way you've got, like, it's a silhouette shot, basically, with just some street lamps peeking through. And I think the reason man is chafing against photographing cities here is that it's difficult to, like, light and balance them properly until we get one, until man gets more money. And he, we also, with digital cameras, um, it's a lot easier to go back and grade them and, you know, do color adjustments and lighting adjustments um, after the fact um, and achieve the look that you want rather than having to set all of that up in the camera before you go. Yeah. To me, like there's something, there, there are a lot of shots in this film that uh, strike me as just having an incredibly painterly quality. And when you, and when you bring up uh, last of the Mohicans, um, like last of the Mohicans, I think a lot of shots have really nakedly, like uh, almost pulled from paintings, right? Yes. They're either, they look like, uh, 18th century uh, pastoral landscapes, or they look like 18th, 19th century military art um, of you know troops marching in formation across the field. Like he that, clearly that, is drawing from those influences. Yeah, like that initial shot of like you know the battle at Albany with you know the French troops outside the walls, like digging trenches, or the um, there's the one shot with the uh, the carriage going across the yes the bridge where you know the water is perfectly still and that was probably a shot that took all fucking day to get before a leaf <laughs> didn't ruin it 
you know, like it's, 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 there's, 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 and by that point, Michael Mann can say, no, fuck it. We're going to wait for this river to calm down. And like, that's the thing is that I think Michael Mann, Michael Mann really, I, from, for me, what I like about Michael Mann is he like, like Kubrick, he is a photographer's director and they're not, there are not many directors who really match that kind of like sensibility where it's like, okay, now you are, you are clearly thinking photographically when you set up some of these shots. Um, and Michael Mann definitely does it, especially with the opening here um, in Thief. Uh, that initial, because you go, you do two things. We hit kind of this, we get the, um, the, the big symmetrical shot of the street lamps from the ground, the street ground level. And then we had the long panning down shot of the, the fire escapes. Um, so you get this kind of weird sense of like the city from these two levels and both are very kind of symmetrical and blocked and light doesn't work quite right. Um, the way man is shooting it, um, which is partially limitation and partially what he's going for. I think. The other thing that grabbed me here, uh, is that I had forgotten how, like, I don't, I didn't realize, I guess, the last time I saw this movie, how influential this film specifically has been. Like, I was startled by the degree to which the opening of Drive, which is is a widely celebrated opening, and it is a good opening, but I was startled here by the degree to which, oh, Drive is just, like, directly quoting Thief. It, it's not an homage. It yeah. is, a like, a direct quotation. Yeah. Very absolutely. much so. Um, we, we, we have, you know, we, we have this, this, uh, shot of, uh, Frank, uh, breaking into a safe. His, his getaway driver is sitting there listening to the police scanner, uh, you know, in, in the rain. And we see just a very, a very calm, like, uh, machine like heist go, go on. Uh, we see that we see the gang split up, uh, head to a drop off location, um, and, uh, sort of vanish into the, you know, pre-dawn hours of Chicago. And then we do get, uh, you know, to, to your point, Dia, um, one of the few sort of attempts to create an establish a uniquely Chicago establishing shot. Like man's going to do a lot with some of the bridges, uh, yeah. around Chicago to just cause they, they are recognizable. Like you, you can place those. Um, uh, but the other thing he does here is, uh, Frank sort of escapes into the early morning and immediately goes and hangs hangs out with an, an old friend of his who's fishing uh, on uh, somewhere on the lakeshore. And uh, Dia, you called it like it's extremely tight shot. The camera drops in behind them and shoots straight out into uh, into the lake, and we see none of the city. We just see the expanse of the water, uh, but we don't get the the shot of Chicago that almost everyone gravitates towards, which is the the, the sweep of the skyline against the lake. Yeah. <laughs> it's so like that was like i kept waiting for like these like basic shots of chicago that are in everything and like like when i was like there i'm like okay and now the the, the skyline against the lake no no okay we're just gonna sure okay all right and i feel like some of that also is just that like frank is not a character that seems like he is part of the larger chicago sort of you know lifestyle like everything from his businesses to like where he hangs out all kind of feels like on the fringes of the city, like kind of in the edges and the more industrial areas, you know, he's hanging out in like these metal shops and these other places, right. like his car dealership. So it kind of makes sense that he's sort of detached from the larger city because all of his life is either in the suburbs or in like these industrial places. The only time I would think he would go into the main city is if he's going to go steal something. 
Yeah, he is. And and this is the other thing is in some ways he is a guy who is trying to present the picture. And we get this in the very next sequence as he arrives at his, both his day job, but also his front, but also it does give the vibe of it is like he, he owns and operates a car dealership. Yeah. Um, and I don't get the sense that it is a complete, it's not, it's not a phony business. He cares deeply about it. There's, there's clearly a lot of pride he has in, in running that place. You know, as he's, as he's walking through the, um, through the parking lot, he's, he's sort actually of managing these, it. Yeah. 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 He's giving orders like how to stage cars, how to display them. He cares about this stuff. And he is, you know, the car dealership, everything is sort of buttoned up and looks looks really sharp. Uh, he is sharply dressed. Later, he's going to make a very, very big point of how he dresses uh, and how he accessorizes. But he is a guy who, on the one hand, is trying to present this image of uh, life in the fast lane, a an upstart success. But yeah, I do pick up what what you're, what you're saying there, Alex. Where despite that. All this stuff he has, it turns out we're going to learn he he owns a bar uh, that's going to be a, a very convincing uh, Chicago blues bar, uh, basically. Or at least it's not a blues bar. It's a bar where blues happens. Yeah. Uh, to, to be <laughs> clear, but it's a very convincing, like, uh, sort of uh, neighborhood watering hole uh, th- that he owns. But all these things do feel like they are not... They're kind of the opposite of the kind of thief we've seen him be, where like as a thief, we see he just broke into a safe and didn't even waste time with uh, jewelry that was in the safe. He is just grabbing uh, like uncut gems and just and just moving. He is he is moving product in volume. He is not running around to pawn shops around the Midwest uh, trying to sell rings. He's he's very much at the at the high end of the, uh, you know, second story game. But when it comes to what he's managed to turn into his legitimate businesses, despite appearances, he is really kind of a aspiring petty bourgeois uh, business owner. He's a small business owner, right? He's, yeah. you know, yeah. this is a guy on track who maybe, uh, you know, the <laughs> maybe one day he'll own three car dealerships in the Chicago area. But that's the thing, like he's and, you know, this is a, I think, a running theme, especially in man's crime pictures is that. It's not enough to like to be a criminal like his criminals are always these incredibly meticulous personalities. You know, it is never like, you know, what's the line in 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 heat? You know, what am I taking down cowboy scores with born to lose written on my forehead? You know, like none of those people don't if they exist, they are usually antagonists like the Mm -hmm. criminals he cares about are the ones that are machines that have, you know, created. You know, he has this artifice of, you know, the the bar and, and the, you know, the, the the car dealership, but like that stuff still has to run. It still has to work. And he wants to make sure that it works. And that's the same with, you know, his criminal behavior. Like everything is about getting the job done. He doesn't care about anything on the fringes of it. He wants to make sure the job is done well, that nothing can trace back to him and that he can get the money he needs to build another artifice, which is, you know, his home life that he is pining after. And I think there's this something is, like, you, oh, sorry. Go no, go for it. I was thinking, like, thinking about like Alex talking about like the machine. Like, I mean, we really do in that opening, that opening heist. Um, you get Frank is like literally being like mirrored by the drill. Like he and yeah. the drill and the camera are all both, you know, they're all operating together. They are the same metaphor. 
metaphor, basically, mm-hmm. for how drilled in Frank is when he is working on this, like, one goal of, like, and, like, even, like, the, you know, like, the, the, there's, like, six different shots of drilling open that safe. Each one of them is v- extremely tight. There's no, there's no wide shot. There's no, like, kind of, like, you know, general shot of the room. There's no shot of James Khan's face that isn't completely zoomed in. They are all focused, just the way Frank is focused, just the way the drill is focused. Everything there is purposeful and just machining through this. I think this is one of the things that I often so – the, the, the thing that often appeals to me about man's work is I have – in some ways, man's protagonists are who I wish I could be, right? Not, not in terms of what they do, but I'm saying the devotion to a craft, right? The fact that these guys – they aren't just guys who show up and, and do a job. It is this meticulousness about doing the job. It is a, um approach to if you are not here to do this right, if you do not – honor the work and and honor the job you have no business being here and there are times where his movies do seem to be sort of explicit they, they, they do valorize that um and one of the things that runs through a lot of his movies is that we live in a society that that doesn't that doesn't honor uh that kind of work that doesn't honor uh you know true craftspeople, people who who care deeply about the work and, and what they bring to it, that largely the tragedy for people like this is they live in a world full of uh, middlemen and, uh, you know, bosses and owners uh, and people who are just going to, to screw you and, and, and take advantage of your, uh, of your work and maybe even turn that care against you. On the other hand, um, man's films, despite as, the way they can be so admiring about this devotion to detail and this perfectionism. Um, all of them, I think sound a cautionary note about it, which is funny because I think man's films are assembled much the way a man protagonist would go about a task, right? Like I think his, his films have a meticulousness uh, to them. I think to a degree, all mm-hmm. his characters are self portraits on the other hand, so many of these movies are also this sort of cautionary note about, hey, being like this will not make you happy, um, you know, to, to draw from the wire, right? Like the job will not save you. Um, that seems to be a lesson that is that is harshly taught to a lot of uh, man protagonists as well, which is that despite all this excellence, maybe in some ways it is that focus uh, that is going to cause you to lose things. The great burden of genius. Yeah. I But I don't even know if it's always... I don't even know if it's always genius. I think sometimes it's, it's, I mean, Frank's not a genius, you know, like he's, and he's very upfront about that, you know, like his life is, he spent a lot of it inside, you know, everything he's learned has just been about survival instinct more than anything else. But, you know, his craft, like the way he's set up in this movie, it sounds like, you know, as far as at least the American Midwest is concerned, there really isn't much of anyone better at what they do than what he is. Yeah. And that's, and that's, I think, um, it's the, it's, it's the giving a shit about right. it, uh, that, that, the, there's a lot of people who will do a job, but not really care about it. Um, and, and man's heroes always do. Um, and yeah, it's the people who are just either phoning it in or just trying to t- seek rent off of it, uh, that tend to be the villains. Um, so yeah, we, we, we see this portrait of him as a small, a small businessman. Then we see him sort of going about a day where after checking it is in at his legit business, he goes and meets his fence, um, who we will meet once. And I think 
to be, to be clear, this is the dude who gets thrown out of a window off screen, right? Yes. Yes, Gax. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so we meet um this we we meet this uh sort of uh slobbish looking uh fussy uh fence they are doing a deal in a diner uh and the fence mentions that there are some people who want to meet frank and frank has no interest in meeting these folks and uh his fence warns him hey these guys are these guys are the real deal they are serious um and i guess this is one of the things there are parts of this film that also still you you do need to fill in some gaps because I don't think it is entirely explicit. Uh, if you don't catch this guy's name is Gags, um, the the next sequence is going to be a little bit confusing. Um, but Gags, I, I think, is talking about Leo. That that there's that Leo, this this uh, sort of arch fence uh, middleman in Chicago, has caught wind that there's someone like Frank out there doing these uh, major major scores. Um, and basically doesn't want that guy operating in Chicago without, uh, sort of tithing, uh, to, to Leo and Gags has been, has been sort of, uh, spoken to, to, to sort of, uh, reach out and, and see about doing this and, and, and Frank rejecting it will, I guess, ultimately seal Gags fate, uh, because in a few minutes we're going to discover that before he can bring Frank uh, the proceeds from this heist, he will be tossed out of a window. Um, but then the other thing that this movie is going to skip over real quick and, and isn't real clear uh, at any point is his relationship to Jesse Tuesday Weld, who he is checking out at the diner uh, while he's meeting up with his fence and goes up to her and says, we're, we're still on for tonight. And it seems like, are they maybe dating? But then like later in this film, when they do meet for what, what is might might be the greatest scene in this movie might be the greatest scene in the man filmography. I don't know. Um, but it seems like they don't know each other that well. And it feels like the, the first act of the movie is real uncertain about where Frank and Jesse stand with each other. Um, and it really wants to get, get to that second act. And there's a lot of like, it feels to me, I'm, I'm curious how it struck you. It feels like there's a lot of hand waving at the table setting that's supposed to be happening here. Definitely a little bit of that. Like, I think the imp- the implication I got with with Jesse is that either they have gone out a couple of times or they have, you know, made plans before and maybe not actually gotten there. But, you know, it is a relatively fresh relationship if there even really is one. Um, and yeah, the gag stuff, I will say that, like, it took a, a couple of viewings for me to fully grasp, like, OK, what's going on there? Uh, the one thing I just want to add about that whole bit uh, is that the the guy who plays Gags, if you don't know this movie is set in Chicago before that, that guy's face tells you right there. <laughs> he is maybe the most Chicago face I have ever seen in my life. There's that uh, that tweet going around <laughs> about like there are some people that just aren't good for period pieces like Jessica Beale has a face that knows about texting. That is a face that has been to a Cubs game and subsists on Chicago hot dogs. Later in the film, uh, just to make sure you know you're in a Chicago cop car, there's going to be a roast beef sandwich out in the dash. Yep. Um, this is a very – this yeah. is a movie that has the meat sweats. Yes. Um, <laughs> and God help me, I love it. Um, yeah, and and so we we kick off into uh, the the film's – what's going to ultimately be the film's major conflict because Frank gets word uh, that Gags has gone out a window. Um, and he knows who did it. He knows who, uh, who went after gags and it's these, uh, like 
criminals based out of this uh, like metal plating uh, factory uh, in like one of the industrial parts of Chicago. And so Frank goes right over there, um, walks into the guy's office and, and Christ, I love this, this <laughs> scene. Uh, he makes his way past all the secretaries. We follow him past all the secretaries. He walks into this guy's office um, and the guy doesn't pay attention to Frank. He, you know, he kind of gives the, what do you want? Uh, you know, greeting. And I'm of, I'm of the opinion that there is something inherently menacing about James Khan that like to a degree, something like that. There's a little bit of Sonny Corleone in the guy to begin with and just his physicality, but he pulls one of the chairs that's in front of the desk off to the side of the desk. It's so good. And it's sits so down in it. That is such a great it. move. Oh my God. Like it's menacing, it, but also incredibly polite at the same time. Like it, it really, it just sets the tone perfectly. Yeah, it is. And he begins, uh, he explains, and this is, this is kind of the, the other thing about, um, we get a taste here. Frank is a guy who deeply cares about fairness, right? That like, mm-hmm. he understands. Yeah. We're all criminals. Yes. But there's fairness, like whatever gags was into that made him run a follow of these guys does not matter. As he, as he puts it, you, uh, we got a problem because when he went out that window, he had uh, some ridiculous amount of my money in his pocket. Um, and all he is there for is reimbursement for the money gags out him for that job. Um, and when that offer is not received, well, it's gun to the head time. Um, and immediately backs this guy off, uh, as well as his guards. And that, that is what sort of locks him on a collision course with, with Leo. Um, and so we are, we are, we are set up for, for an evening meeting that I think is, is this the only shot we're going to get of the, I guess we're going to get under the L tracks at one point, but I think this is our big skyline shot yeah, for the night, right? Yeah. The, the meeting by Chicago river. Yeah, this is the only one I think. And this one's really interesting because, again, we do so much framing because there is so much just blackness in this shot. Like, it is, like, so much this negative space that, like, this skyline is really kind of more indicated by its absence than its presence, if that makes sense. One of the things that's interesting photographically about this shot is they use the hood, like, this, the, the roof of the car as blocking to make the scene actually interesting. <laughs> It really like man is using so much of the negative space of the scene to crop in just on Frank and Leo so tightly, but like there's not a whole lot there. It's just you know it's a dark night, you know, in front of the river, and so it, it's blocked out. Like and I'm like sitting there, I was like watching, and I'm like, wait a minute, what is what is filling up all of the space? And I realized, oh, this is the cars. The cars are being used as like literal matting to crop the shot. Yeah, it's um. One other one other thing that I kind of wondered about with the scene as well is um, so the lights in the in the buildings are also like really like blue and green shifted, um, and I, I am curious to what degree like is is man slapping a filter on shooting the scene or is this just a weird artifact of like the type of lighting in the period meeting this film stock being pushed this hard. It's the film stock, um, pretty much. Like, yeah, um, a lot of it's like hard to tell on um, because I was watching on 
voodoo so i couldn't really quite make out like the quality of the shadows but like a lot of the the night shots in this are kind of like the shadows are very very underexposed because he's getting these shadows as black as possible um and like uh, one of the things that man is doing a lot with the lighting in this is pushing the film stock to its extremes and when you do that you do start getting these casts um you know uh i don't know what stock this is actually filmed on my guess is it might be like a fuji stock fuji stock tends towards blues and greens is what i'm thinking um when it's underexposed especially uh but like yeah that's definitely um there's a lot of there's a lot of moments in this where man is just I don't want to say let down by the tools available to him, but it is, he is running up against just kind of the extreme edge cases of like what these are capable of. I mean, this is according to IMDb that it's 35 millimeter Eastman. So it's a Kodak stock. That's interesting. Oh, huh. That's interesting. This is the same film that they shot the shining and blade runner and ET and alien on. I was wondering some of the, some of these shots do like did call Blade Runner to mind really. I think the way um I don't know. I think it's a combination of the, the way the the grain and the light play together to create sort of a uh, again like sort of uh uh like a painted sheen to it almost um that almost like you're seeing the image through a sheen. In, in I guess the way I would put it. Real 20, quick here. I was going to say, just real quick, uh, that you've mentioned The Shining. There's actually a shot, and this is, I don't think it's a direct reference or anything, but like that shot in the office when, you know, you can see the bridge in the background and he moves the chair around kind of reminded me of that shot in The Shining of the office with the impossible window and that stuff. Like, it's just, I don't know. Like, it might just be that all wood paneled offices from the 70s and early <laughs> 80s look the same to me, but. I mean, he there's, there's every reason to believe he's going to school on, um, a ton of the directors were just just before him. Yeah. Um, the the other thing is, a lot of these shots of this meet uh, do sort of it feels very voyeuristic as we sort of watch them uh, sort of circle around each other, and it turns out there's a good reason for this as well, uh, which is that the Chicago police are already surveilling uh, Frank and Leo, uh, and when Leo hands over a stack of cash to make up for uh what what he lost when when gags was killed um we we see one of the detectives uh sort of freak out and say my god there must have been like two inches of cash uh in in that envelope um also worth noting that the the cop who who does that uh is john santucci who was apparently like an honest to god master thief um in chicago uh at, at at the time and was doing a lot of the technical advising uh for this film uh this 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 set sounds like it was incredible to be on uh because it was basically a wash in uh like career criminals and uh like chicago cops um arguably one of the same thing but just different different lines of work uh but yeah, like the, the this set had a ton of uh you know actual uh skilled thieves consulting basically on on what this film should look like and 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 what sort of and and how Frank uh, should should go about his business. 
Uh, and ironically, Santucci, of course, is is playing a cop here. But I but I do think in all these scenes, it, it's kind of interesting to know that in all these images of shakedowns and cops brutalizing people and the way thieves sort of uh, are spoken to by their fences, all this, I, I think, has it seems like it is informed on some level by the experiences of people who've actually lived that life. Um, and that nobody seemed to think it was at all like no, nobody bat an eye at the notion that like, well, what would the cops, you know, like if we're far cry from heat here where in heat it's, we must stop the master thieves. We must catch these guys and make a bust here. The cops are on Frank mostly so they can start charging him rent to work in Chicago. Yeah, the cops here are, you know, they're just part of the larger web of criminality going on in the city. You know, they're just there for their end. You know, as long as you pay them, you won't have any issues. You won't have any problems with them. And if you don't, if you're someone like Frank, who through some version of, you know, whatever his notion of morals are, it just refuses to give himself over to people who don't deserve, I think, or in his mind, don't deserve any aspect of his work, his labor, his money. And you mentioned like, you know, they, they had the real thieves there and the, and the cops there kind of technical advising. I think they're also talking about how like all the stuff they are using in the film are not really props. Like these are the actual tools that they were using to hack into these safes. They weren't making fake versions of them. They were actually letting them use like the real tools and, James Kahn talks a couple of times on the commentary and be like, yeah, no, I nearly, you know, broke my hand or, you know, busted my ass using this stuff because it was a pain. Yeah, like um, the the fact that, like, apparently some of these tools were legitimately like from the personal collections of some of these thieves. Um, the, the commentary is terrific to listen to because because they do talk about uh, sort of both man's devotion to uh, practical uh effects and uh using real tools and in, instead of props uh something goes through his career uh but also the the way that we see a lot of that work in this film in particular uh because so much of this is going to be about watching uh frank go about his his business um but yeah so let's let's start with the actual offer that that leo makes here um i am curious the first like we we know because we've seen it a couple times, like where this is all headed. The first time you saw this film, did did you see Leo coming when he, when he makes this offer? I don't know that I did. I think you know I I sensed that there was definitely something under the surface beyond the very friendly grandpa like presentation he was kind of giving off. But I don't think that I quite clocked just how insidious the thing he was doing with Frank was. Damn, yeah, I'm curious. How do you how how do you read Leo from this first scene? Yeah, no, I definitely. I guess life. My, my I'm trying to remember like my first at reading way back in the day um, was. It was definitely more. I'm like, you know, oh, he's going to trap him. But I thought it was going to be much more, you know, much more just kind of a, a violent and aggressive off the front, not the insidious like pulling you in and then now like oh look now you're stuck you're you were literally enmeshed in my life um in these very subtle but you know pernicious ways yeah i think i think it's kind of a for for me i always feel a little bit uh implicated by how 
much sense Leo made to me the first time I was watching this film, because in some ways what Leo is offering is a classic. Um, this is the classic deal you're offered if you're like a uh, high skill uh, worker, right? Which is that, hey, um, you could continue to be your own boss and, and uh, you know, hustle your own work, but I can hook you up with bigger work. You won't have to be the entrepreneur I can handle all the like getting contracts and, and finding you your next gig. And you can just focus on the work, which is what you're good at and, and what you're passionate about. Uh, and you're just going to, you're going to do the work you care about. And because it's going to be bigger and bigger jobs, uh, it's going to be a lot more money, uh, for less work. And all of that, when, when I heard it the first time, like, yeah, there's clearly danger here. Uh, but also it, some of the danger seems to be Frank's pathological aversion to um, two deals like this. It sounded, it, it all sort of made sense. Um, and ultimately this is going to become a film about how these things come to control you. Uh, but yeah, the combination both of Prosky's demeanor um and it's unsettling because like how much Prosky specifically looks like my grandfather. It's, <laughs> it freaks me out. Like he looks like uh, like two generations back. That is, that is what exactly man uh, turned into. Um, but also just everything he says tracks with, how, I think how a lot of us are instructed to expect our careers to go uh, in some ways, Frank's hostility to it. I don't know if it would have seemed this way to audiences at the time uh, who are a little like more, who are maybe just a little bit like closer to the history of the labor movement at this point. Uh, but watching it for the first time when I did and in, in the two thousands uh, as, as a freelancer, when Leo makes that offer, I'm like, yeah, that's probably how this should go. Um, and obviously it's, it's, it's not, uh, this is, this is a film that, that kind of, kind of has a horror for that kind of arrangement and, and suspects there's something inherently exploitative about it. Well, there definitely is. And, you know, it's not just that, you know, he's offering protection or he's offering, you know, this kind of, you know, the ability, like a launching point to get to the life that he wants. But like, you know, the job that he offers him is, you know, the the job that he starts out the movie with, he's making around 180 grand. The job that he's offering him is like, you could just have 800 grand right now. And, you know, it's a challenge, you know, beyond theoretically what he's had been able to do up to this point and you know to someone like him who is sort of a master craftsman at what he does in a way i almost feel like the job itself is maybe more the appeal even than the other aspects of it you know like leo is a disarm or you know he's a disarming personality but you know when you present him it's like here's this incredible job there's tons of money to be had it is exactly what you want figure it out figure out this puzzle for me you can kind of see the gears turning there. So ultimately, Frank like plays for time that he needs to think about this. Uh, and his decision is going to be made by the next scene, uh, which is he is he has been made late for his date uh, because of this because of this crime shit he's got to do. Uh, and so don't you hate it when you're when you're late to pick up your girl from the bar you own? Um and all, all because you were meeting with a underworld boss in the city. Um, but he does basically like he hauls Jesse out of that bar. 
Uh, she doesn't want to go out with him. And he very violently just like drags her out of the bar and ransat her in the car uh, as he as he drives her to, I guess, their date, though. They're not going to any date like place. Uh, they're going to one of those um, in the Chicago area. I don't know how common these are in, in other cities, but in the Chicago area, uh, at some point, they loved putting restaurants above highways um, like in inside uh, sort of these these rest stops um, where you where you would have a a building stretched out over over the highway and that's where he, he ends up taking her but on the drive there um he he sort of ran at her for a good uh two or three minutes uh basically pissed at her for being pissed at him that he's late uh because in his view she should have already divined that he's a criminal um that you know, as, as he puts it, what do you think I do? Um, and she argues that, well, you're, you're a car salesman. And then he proceeds basically to um, give us the cost of his wardrobe uh, <laughs> as he as he sort of rants at her uh, and explains that he's 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 a he's a thief. He's a he's, he's a criminal. Um, and it sets us up for a great scene. Uh, but. I am curious, like, what do we, what do you, what do you make of, what do you make of this entire sequence? where are picking, picking Jesse up for the date. Cause I think it is violent and overbearing at the time. I think in the year since it's probably reads only as more so. Um, and I'm, I'm curious how it scans to you now and what you, what you make of them coming out of it. Yeah, it it really is hard to watch that scene as anything other than wow, fuck this guy. <laughs> Holy shit. You know, he he lifts, he carries her out of this bar where he has left her to sit. And like, first of all, I want to talk about like this bar sequence, the way it has been staged and blocked and like shooting through the people so perfectly. Um it's just like I just like watch. I'm just like, I'm like, this is so well set up and choreographed and this is beautiful and perfect. Um, and such tight shots too of the crowd in this, in this bar. Um, but then like, just like, you know, violently just lifts her up and carries her out after threatening the guy who tries to stop him with his like gun and his, you know, his piece in his, in his pants. Um, and then put like, just kind of dumps her into the passenger side. And then, no. As soon as he walks around to get in the driver's side, she's just like, I'm getting out. <laughs> yes. And so then he walks back around, grabs her, and then walks her back and carries her back to the other side. And then, like, kind of dumps her in through the driver's side. Yeah. And then nearly runs over a bunch of pedestrians who are sort of, like, concer- half concerned, half drunk right before he peels yeah. out. Yeah. It's um, it's one of those things where it is the, – the thing that I think makes it – by the end of the next scene, she will have effectively accepted his offer of marriage. Uh, and in this scene, it is uh, he just strikes you as such a brute, but also just a a dangerous guy. Not just on the level of like he's a criminal who carries a gun, but also like he's gonna he's gonna get, <laughs> honey, he's gonna get you killed in a traffic accident just on the way to the bar. Like uh, he just seems like such a violent tempered asshole. Um, that everything about him uh, is screaming, just run fast, run far. Um, but maybe that is a testament to what the next scene achieves, that 
I, I do feel like in the next scene, uh, the, the, the scene that we're about to discuss, um, we are going to get a much fuller picture of him and it one that I think can somewhat plausibly uh, change our impressions and change Jesse's uh, impressions of Frank. Um, and th- this is, of course, uh, the, the diner scene. And before we get into the scene, uh, we should take a pause here so that hopefully uh, you can you can listen to some of the dialogue uh, from this really long conversation uh, that uh, Tuesday Weld and uh, James Conn have uh, in this in this booth in this diner uh, with the with the traffic uh, hissing past on the on the on the freeway. What'd you go up? I stole forty dollars. Forty dollars? Yeah. Started with a two-year bit, parole in six months. And right away, I got into this problem with these two guys. They tried to turn me out. So I picked up uh, nine more on, on a manslaughter beef, some other things. I was 20 when I went in, 31 when I come out. You don't uh, you don't count months and years. Uh, you don't do time that way. What do you mean? Why? Why? You gotta forget time. Uh, you gotta not give a fuck if you live or die. Uh, you gotta get to where nothing means nothing. I'll tell you a story all about it. Once there was this uh, Captain Morphus. This uh, three hundred pound slob. He couldn't write his name. He had this crew of uh, 16 or 17 guards and cons and prison groups, you know, crews. They would uh, <clears throat> go into these cells and grab these young guys and bring them up to hydrotherapy in the mental ward, uh, gangbang. And if a guy puts up a struggle, they beat him half to death and he winds up in a funny farm. And Anyway, word comes down that I am next. I do not know what I am supposed to do. I, uh, I'm scared. 11, 30, 12, uh, lights come on, and uh, I got this pipe from, uh, from plumbing. And uh, I whack the first uh, guard in the shins, and I go through a convict and another convict. And anyway, I get to Morphus, and I whack him across the head twice. Boom. And then they jump all over me, do a bunch of things. I spend six months in hospital ward, but uh, Morphus, he is also fucked up real good. Uh, Cerebral hematoma, they pension him out, and he can't walk straight, and he dies two years later, which is a real loss to the planet Earth. Meanwhile, I gotta go back into the uh, mainstream population. And I know the minute I hit the yard, I am a dead man. So I hit the yard, so you know what happens. Nothing. I mean, nothing happens. Because uh, I, I don't mean nothing to myself. I don't care about me. I don't care about nothing, you know? And then uh, I know from that day that I survived because I achieved that mental attitude. And then, uh, <clears throat> see later, I, 
work this out. So I think a lot of um, there's the I think the most quotable sections of the scene are probably James Conn's. But I, I do want to say here, I think it's really easy to overlook how good Tuesday Weld's uh, performance is in this movie. I think that the the sequence opens with her giving the thumbnail sketch version of her life and how she arrived at this moment. And also the thing that's going to set up uh, Frank for his sort of uh, big monologue is kind of her turning the tables on him of, of her reversing the conversation, taking the focus off of her and forcing him to account for how he ended up here and why he's this way. Um, but it, it's a scene that doesn't have, again, like it's, it's unclear what their relationship was, but uh, it opens with, with him sort of, of asking uh, Jesse, you know, what was it like? Uh, what, what happened before, b- before now? And uh, Jesse tells with just like fractions of details. She doesn't provide a clear narrative. It's this almost like impressionistic portrait of a small time crook's girlfriend who is just dragged down to hell with him. Um, how, how did you all, how, how did this all land for you? What interested me was how little she gives up and how much she extracts from Frank in return. Um, it almost feels like she is kind of like, this is her chance to play him against himself um, and really kind of, you know, get a read on this guy that she's been kind of dating. You know, like she's just like, you know, like Tuesday Well does so much work here, just kind of like with these like kind of, you know, not really vacant, but there's kind of a placidness to her facial expressions that really sell like, you know, the kind of the woman who has been dragged to hell before by, you know, getting in relationship, maybe being in a relationship with like, you know, like you know a piece of shit boyfriend and is kind of aware that like this could happen again with this you know with frank the man who's sitting across from her and is kind of like almost like it feels like she's like i'm gonna give you like a little bit of bait to draw you out so i can see if this is even worth it for me or at least what kind of shit hell i'm gonna get dragged to this time yeah yeah like it's in it's in is interesting like it's unclear how much Frank knows about the fact that she comes from a checkered past before going in but like the way that he kind of frames it in that beginning of the scene being like you know where like what how did it go down what were you doing like finding about her time in Colombia and stuff it, it's clear that he has some notion that she has you know a past that she is maybe not trying she's trying to get away from but the main thing about Tuesday Weld in this movie, and I think she avails herself a lot better than a lot of other actresses, especially in like Michael Mann crime films, because Michael Mann seem likes to when he does write women characters, it feels like they are puzzle pieces in the lives of com- complicated men. You know, they are yep. not really yes. people so much as they are a factor that they have to consider when they are making their important decisions about their lives. And but the the difference here is that she's not just there; like she's being pitched on this life that Frank wants. This this you know the the marriage, the kids, the house, and all that stuff. And you kind of see how she sort of makes the calculation herself and makes the choice. She's not railroaded into it; she sees her end in it, 
And you kind of get that in that scene of her just sort of like realizing like, there's something here. We can make this work. And it's, you know, she she acts it very well, but I think there's just like a little bit more going, even, even though that character doesn't get a lot of like dialogue time in the movie, she gets to work like more to work with. And I feel like a lot of other women characters in man films tend to get. Yeah. And I, and I think part of it is she's also fending off. I, I don't know. What's what's up with this? Uh, I think sometimes characters and man's heroes, uh, even though they're devoted to like one sort of craft are almost presented as omnicompetent in just in terms of their ability to read people and their ability to like, uh, extract the right, right piece of information or, or, or say the right thing. And here we actually see Frank um, really not being cool or smooth at all. What he's doing is something really familiar. He's trying to basically dump on a previous boyfriend, right? Mm-hmm. And explain like how much better he is uh, an um, asshole. Yeah. Yeah. And she's fighting back with, you know, there was a lot of love in the beginning. Uh, and he's just trying to discount it, trying to dismiss this entire. You know, she's a character that could there there could be a, a movie about her life to this point, right? Yeah. But he's trying to dismiss all of that. It's just she was uh, you know, she dated an asshole loser. Um, and boy, it's a good thing that uh when she reveals the guy got killed, uh, you know, down in Colombia doing a drug deal, uh he was way over his head in. Uh and you know, as her her response to that is Oh no, like I didn't get lucky. Like it didn't this didn't prevent the worst from happening. The worst happened. Uh, you know, she as she put it, you know, he, he tries to say, Do you know what they, they do to you ten times a day uh down in Columbia if you get caught with a uh you know a, a kilo of coke? And she sort of cuts him off. She she says, you know, I did get caught. I stuff did happen. Um she knows exactly what bot what you know what rock bottom can look like in this life and this sort of attempt at, at like establishing himself as worldly. Um, and I think we, this is, and we're going to see why this is such a false facade. Frank isn't worldly. He's experienced with aspects of criminal life. He's, he's been effectively raised in institutions and, uh, and prison, but he hasn't been out much in the world. Uh, he's heard about these things, but like he hasn't lived it. Like he's been out of prison and for so- like four or five years. Right. And that's about it. Yeah. 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 And so this this attempt to try to present himself as like I know how like I know the world of of crime uh and you know RIP to your boyfriend but I'm different. Mm-hmm. She sort of she, she sort of hits back uh against that that uh she knows it too. She knows she knows the cost and the risks uh you know just as well. And this is where she turns things around on him uh you know basically demanding him to account for his life to this point as she asks for the cream uh and we get a great i just a just a little beat here that i love so much um i, I don't know why this makes the scene for me it's when she he hands her the cream and she pours it out and we don't even see it it's all his reaction uh he just like we hear uh khan go like yeesh <laughs> they, they have to ask for fresh cream and the waitress comes over and uh you know what's wrong with it what's wrong with it it's it's cottage cheese um i don't know why that 
I think it's a D, de- you know, it's just a detail that like, I, of course, that's, that's how you show up at a diner at a certain time. You gotta be real careful with the cream. Uh, cause it's probably been out since the morning. Um, I love that detail. And then we, we get launched into his monologue about being in prison and sort of the, the cycle that, that he was caught in and his big, uh, realization. Um, and, I guess so. Alice, let me let me let me flip it over to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, what what was the what's the like? What does Frank here establish as the key to his life? The 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 key to his success. I feel like the key to his success is that you know he like he talks about his time in prison. He talks about the horrible things that have happened to him in prison, and you know he the thing that it kind of goes through is that like you know what he went to prison for wasn't really that much time. But he got into situations where he had to commit violent acts to survive, which put him in for much longer. And, you know, he's very matter of fact about that, that he did what he had to do in order to survive that experience and to to eventually make his way back out into the world. And I, you know, I think for me, the thing I took away is that, like, his survival instinct is an at all costs kind of thing. You know, it's it is that survival instinct that got him through prison is that survival instinct that has kept him out of prison since he got back. And, you know, I think his desire to build a life that is more, you know, uh, blandly American normal is also kind of wrapped up in that survival notion, because to him, he sees a much longer life. He sees a much more, you know, fruitful existence that, you know, he sort of paste as as dia said like you know pasted together out of his uh you know his 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 tumblr blog his 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 etsy (laughs) trying to like create like a vision of a life where he can he doesn't just have to survive anymore and you know and that's just it's made him into you know to a degree a killer but for the most part it's just made him a person who knows how to survive without necessarily drawing too much attention to himself yeah he he tells the story of like having basically like basically knowing he's been tapped uh to be like brutally assaulted uh in prison and basically that he beats the living shit out of uh you know a big wheel in in prison uh and basically uh renders renders this guy effectively brain dead and how he he just expects that he's going to be killed in retaliation for that um and he describes this moment of like reaching the yard and, and and nothing happening because everyone can see, or he thinks everyone can see. That he's just a man beyond caring, uh, and that he will do yeah, whatever it takes, uh, to to survive, um, and just nobody nobody wants to deal with that. Uh, the the dealing with somebody like that is inherently risky. Um, but then the other the other part of this is this is all part of his pitch to not be that person anymore. This is all part of his pitch to Jesse um, to explain what, what's kept him going and what he's, what he's trying to build his life life toward. And um, I don't know. It's, it's this, this part is, it remains incredibly sweet to me, but also just really it's sweet, but so weird. Yeah. The, can you describe the Pinterest board that he presents her with? Cause it's, it's uh, fucked up. God, I wish I had gotten a screenshot of it so I could like have it directly to reference, but like, yeah, he has created, it's almost like 
it's like, a, like at first I thought he had the postcard and I'm like, no, no, it's been kind of, it, this is a collage that he has created. And it is about like kind of a slightly oversized postcard, you know, shape of like, you know, children. And like, is there like, there's like a palm tree on it? I can't, I'm trying to remember. There's, yeah. like, there's like all of these images of like the good life. It's like, you know, if you distilled down a light beer ad into a postcard, <laughs> Like, this is kind of what he has crafted here, with the exception of there's the weird skulls on the side. Yeah, there's an ossuary photo in, in yeah. the corner of the frame. And she's like, the fuck? What's with all the death? <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's weird because, like, there's this, this, there, there's a meticulousness to the construction of, like, first of all, this is not like a sloppy, uh, uh, you know, collage. It's not like just kind of, you know, chunks cut out of magazine, even though it is cut out of a magazine. It all fits together beautifully. Like, this is, you know, like very clearly just like, you know, professionally done collage art. Um, but it happens to be, you know, Frank, which I think speaks again to his, you know, kind of fastidiousness about himself and his career and everything, his decision making. Um, but like, it is very, you know, put together in such a way that it is like very like visually you just look at it and it's like oh this is a narrative like and this is is all perfectly constructed and this is the life that he apparently visions for himself um and like he carries it around with him um which is interesting because like the things that he carries with him we early in the movie we can like I, this is like one of the things that really, really interesting early in the movie we get a shot of him opening his wallet when he gets the letter from okla who says come get me out of prison and he goes to put it in his wallet and he opens his wallet and we get a shot of all of his credit cards and you know this is the time when like you know go oh, he's got like he's got the amex he's got the the bank america card before it becomes a visa you know he's got like all of the you know the gas cards and he's got two um diners club cards <laughs> um and they're all like you know he just kind of tucks all this stuff in his wallet and then he's got like you know his obsession with his clothes and like his ring and communicating that and so he's this guy that like is kind of keeps communicating these weird concepts of like what he thinks of life and what life is supposed to be and how you achieve it um in this very specific way and like what i think is interesting is tuesday weld really doesn't give a shit until he pulls out this little like mood board, which is basically just like, you know, this is like him, like, you know, being the guy who can cry in front of his girlfriend. Like, it's basically this moment where he pulls out this card and tells her like all of these stories about what his, his vision is. And the other thing uh, I love the the way he sort of ends his pitch with the. I have run out of time. I have lost it all. So I can't work yes. fast enough to catch up. I can't run fast enough to catch up. And the only thing that catches me up is doing my magic act, but it ends. And I don't know that there is, this is a movie from man that has such a good, so many of his movies are interested in work, but I think this is maybe the best grasp he has on the meaning of work to the worker. Um, where, this sense of you've only got so many years to to earn for your future, right? Like the future is is this rapidly closing thing, uh, you know, and you have you, you you have your capacity to to ply your trade uh, for for only so long, and especially if it's a 
you know, if, if it's sort of a high high risk uh, thing <laughs> that like like Frank does, he's he's a guy who uh, makes money with with hard physical labor that's dangerous on a few different axes. Um, and so the, the the end of this pitch where he's kind of he's kind of acknowledging that he, he's already a guy who can feel that even though he's a few years into this really successful stint as a career criminal, um, that that it is going to end really quickly. Uh, that that he's never going to get back the years he lost, and he doesn't even have that many years to really take advantage of this. Uh, you know, to to really build this strong, stable life that that he wants. Um, and so he has this really beautifully panicked, desperate, vulnerable quality uh, in this scene that I think makes it a lot easier. Like I think we can understand by the end of the scene. Even though it's still kind of a kind of an out there decision from Jesse, I can understand by the end of it why her heart kind of melts for him, uh, because it is such a vulnerable, childish, uh, sad portrait that that Frank paints himself here, um, and it's it's incredibly authentic. Uh, I just I absolutely love it. Yeah, I think it makes sense that she takes the offer. And I think it also makes sense, you know, why Frank is willing to go, you know, kind of go against his own instincts and take on, you know, a job with Leo, because in a sense, he's trying to speed run his way to, you know, Mm -hmm. a normal life, because like you said, he doesn't have that much time. And it's interesting because I think he's supposed to be like 35 or 36 in this movie, which James Caan I mean, he was only 40 in this movie, but he does not look 35 years old. Um, but, you know, it, like I, I imagine it, you know, just having been in the prison situation that he was in and having lived the life that he has, he doesn't foresee a long and help a healthy, happy life for himself. He wants to get to the good stuff while he still feels like there's an opportunity there. Yeah. And the other, you know, having having made this confession, the other thing that she has to come back at him with uh and and again like just the, these two performers sort of matching each other uh beat for beat the way she almost can't speak she taps the picture and is like i don't i don't fit in this and she reveals that she for whatever reason she can't have kids right um and so this, this picture that he's laid out she this is he he sort of touched one of her real pain points which is that maybe she wants part, parts of this for herself too but like for her, she feels that she can't be a person that that creates that kind of life because uh, she can't have kids. And and Frank comes back with, in some ways, kind of one of the it's not one of the main themes of this film, but it's going to become a major uh, fixation for them, which is um, like he thinks nothing of it. Like biological kids doesn't matter to him at all. Yeah, he's totally um, fine he's with like, adopting. So, so we'll adopt. <laughs> yeah, he just yeah. wants a family. Yeah. And in fact, it. it and it sort of centers on this, like for him, it's not even just that he wants, he he does want to do this, like raising a life type of thing. But I think one of the other things is this awareness that like, there are people, there are things that come into this world that need nurturing, that need raising. And we, we don't know much about Jesse, but we do know clearly that like Frank didn't get that. Um, And, and so for, for him, like, it's not just the, this is spelled out more clearly when the, when they go to the adoption agency, but uh, you know it, it's not just that he wants a kid to sort of complete the picture. 
it is this profound need to help a child have what was denied Frank uh, when, when he was a kid. Um, and again, I think that sort of rescues, I think some of the selfishness we could see in this vision uh, and turns it into something a little more sympathetic, uh, w- which is that, you know, if one of the idealizations of a parent's goals is to, you know, give your child a better life th- than you had, Frank kind of embodies that because, because his life was shit. Um, and one way or another, he wants to make sure that he, he has a kid whose life is not going to be that way. Um, but the, yeah, the only way to bring this to fruition is to walk out of that diner, get on the horn, call Leo and lay out some pretty simple ground rules. He wants to do a couple jobs, high value. He doesn't, I don't know that he does he doesn't spell out and then I'm quitting uh, you know, I want a couple last big scores and then I'm done. Uh, but, but he is very clear. He is, he is signing on, he is signing a temporary contract with Leo. That is the deal he is, he is willing to make. And Leo's cool with that. And we cut to the scene of the, the big heist, this, this massive, uh, safe in this tower in LA, um, somewhere downtown, not too far from the fig. Uh, it turns mm-hmm. out we can see the fig in the background <laughs> of uh, a couple of these shots. Um, but what, you know, it's standard heist movie planning stuff. Leo is out there. They're reconning the place. Uh, they, they, they know what they're kind of up against. And one of the things they're up against is a big fucking safe. Um, and this takes us immediately to one of my favorite uh shots in this movie he goes to this um like smelting plant um and he walks inside of it and i i swear to god like there's something almost um you know like again like uh uh what is it like socialist realism uh like the the sort of soviet (laughs) hero paintings of like mill workers and assembly line workers and like uh people in foundries Boy, does it feel like as we as we uh, sort of track Frank through this this foundry and we see the workers, uh, you know, just entombed in their in their in their safety equipment, uh, you know, all hard hats, helmets, uh, blue work shirts and uh, the, the cold blue of the light. And then the, you know, the 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 starkness of the the arc lighting and the uh, and, and the torches Um I think it's just an incredibly beautiful shot. And it also feels like it is just a massive, uh, like Soviet mural uh, <laughs> that, that man is painting in the middle of this picture. Yeah, no, I really, I, I re- always re- bristle against the, the concept of like the painterly uh, photograph because, you know, or, or, or shot like, um, but it really, it is. Uh, and also like everything here kind of glows from just slightly like behind itself. Um, like no one is really kind of internally lit or lit from above. It is all kind of this, like this smelting plant, you know, just like almost like a magma kind of lighting it up from beneath it. Um, it's really just beautiful, like pan through this like uh, factory. <laughs> it's great. And, you know, it, it's emblematic of the approach I think that they end up taking to the job. You know, this is not a, a, a heist where, you know, they spend a painstaking amount of time, like, assembling the team, you know, like getting the whole thing together. No, it's the same guys he always works with. And he has these people that make these tools for him. And he knows this guy at this plant. And so the guy's like, 
give me a week. I'll figure something out. And so he does. And, you know, it's just like, and at the same time, you know, you talked about the part where they're, they're in LA and they're kind of casing the joint and whatever. The people that are being heisted here are not villains. Like they're not characters really even like the, the job itself has no personality other than there's a big ass safe in a room with a whole bunch of alarms, including one that they can't identify. And, you know, I, 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 I like heist movies, certainly, that get more into sort of like the high drama of that stuff. But I think here that would have rang incredibly false. And I like that, that it is really just a job. It's a complicated job, but it's a job that like it's just about finding the right tools, picking your right spot and just doing it. No, we get like very we get like we get jargon, but we get very specific pointed like, you know, when when jargon is used and when like kind of you know, the actual kind of like the the mechanics of breaking these safes and getting past these security systems is used. It's very purposeful. Yeah. And like, and we, and it, it just gives you enough to be like, damn, we really going to break in this fucking safe right now. Um, and it's not going to be some cartoon shit. It's going to be for real breaking in this safe, um, which really works um, for this movie. So well. Yeah. I think um, we've gotten so used to the, Ocean's Eleven version of the heist film totally. where it's like uh-huh. uh, we get the quick walkthrough of what the defenses are around the safe and then all the clever ways we're going to outthink uh, the the layers of security, the ways we're going to socially engineer uh, the situation. And, you know, the that, that version, because I think so many heist movies are kind of like they're, they're buddy films, right? Mm-hmm. Despite the fact that Frank has friends, it's not a buddy movie. Um, it's, that that's not the interest here. And the other thing is that, you know, to, to your point just now, we are going to realize how serious and hard this job is when we see the tool he needs to use to do it. Cause like, <laughs> I still can't name many heist movies that have anything like the fucking giant thermal lance, the burn bar he's going to shove through like three feet of steel, uh, over the course of this film. Uh, and, so we we get this sense of like he is going to need a bespoke tool from a master craftsman uh to be able to defeat this safe and there's not going to be some there's not going to be much like elegance to it from the standpoint of we're going to uh you know get inside the head of security or something like that it's just going to be a job where what he has is a mechanical engineering problem, a material science problem. And that's where his skill set lies. And in some ways it's, um, it's so many heist films also rely on like kind of a magical logic to things, uh, where, you know, Danny ocean has to know exactly what all the responses and all the counter moves are going to be. Um, here it, it just feels more convincing and that, no, what, what actually kind of matters is you just need to like, what is the material you are drilling into? What is the type of lock you are trying to defeat? These things have answers. Um, yeah, and it, you don't. It has all the romanticism of like an HVAC ins- installation. You know, like it yeah. is a very yeah. blue collar <laughs> job they are doing. Yeah, right. That right. At, like they're gonna be up on a roof with the HVAC shit. Yeah, uh, cutting and cutting into a shaft. Um, the other the other thing that, and and I I feel like the stuff maybe doesn't come through as much in man's later work but um you know again we're talking about the uh sort of heroic portrait of the worker in some of these uh in some of the shots in this foundry the guy he's talking to uh is apparently a blacklisted 
uh, Chicago theater director, uh, according to man on the commentary. Um, <laughs> and so this is a, this is a guy who in his own time was denied the capacity to deny the chance to do a lot of his work, uh, due to being a socialist. Um, and I feel like this film is very heart on sleeve when it comes to, uh, like labor and capital in a way that I don't think either man loses interest in those themes or he is more responsive to the political tides of the moment when uh, when he's making his later work. But here, this is very much like socialist allegory uh, via the heist film. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. Like right down to, you know, the way that Leo sort of frames himself as like not a boss, but like as, you know, you're you're not – I'm, you're not my employee. You're part of the family now. You know, that way that bosses kind of tended to sort of worm their way into your psyche and make you think that you're part of something more other than just a profit extraction machine. You know, like there's a lot of that kind of running through it. Yeah. And the, and, and sort of the, the, the key to the to, to Frank's emotional vault is is a kid. Um, and we get a really sad scene of uh, him and Jesse trying to adopt. Um, and the, oh, it's so brutal. The ways the administrator at the adoption agency finds to play dumb and make him feel small and make him like explain that he's a con. You know what I mean? That, like, like he has like, to say just, the reason out loud why he is not going to get this adoption. Yeah, she can't just she can't just say, oh, you were at Joliet prison. Well, that's going to be a problem. She is like, oh, well, did you work at the prison? And he's sort of knowing like after a fashion. But the fact that and you also see Jesse in the scene um, realize so quickly. She's seen like it feels like she's seen this movie before, right, that she knows like. This is just not this is not going to work. This is what they do. Um, and Frank really thinks walking in there. With all that money he has, with all the way he can present himself, um, he thinks he's put prison behind him and the way he is just made to feel small uh, in the in the sequence. And then the way he just blows up at um you know, at the entire institution, uh, you know, are, you know, basically saying, who are you to say we can't, uh, you know, raise children? Um, because he, you know, as, as, as he put it, um, you know, the, the kids they allegedly care for, they're growing up in a dead place. Um, and he gives another great speech, you know, where eventually, uh, you just tell the walls, uh, you know, take me, I'm yours. Um, it's another great sequence um and i think another you know aspect of of so, so the sociological critique we see in in man's films where like this notion of he'll explore this in a lot of different films the way like all these institutions in 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 the world they're allegedly there for helping people and connecting people in need um helping people like sort of start a new chapter in their lives the way all those institutions will turn against anyone who has at any point strayed from the beaten path of the straight and narrow. Um, it's, it's, it's an ugly scene, which 
I guess takes us to the deal he strikes with Leo. Um, see again, this is where Leo got me. I really, I'm, I, I was with Frank uh, in this sequence when when Leo makes the offer, we can find you a kid. Um, and Leo makes this case that you know. It, Frank wants to know where the kid's going to come from, and and Leo basically tells him they're gonna they're gonna buy a kid uh, off off someone who who doesn't want to raise her her kid, um, and Frank's kind of horrified at at that kind of deal, and Leo kind of just responds, "It's not the kid's fault that his mother's an asshole." Um, it's like at that point, Leo seems so on level that that again, like it's it's one of those moments where I'm like. Yeah, like this is this is going to be your uh this is your Don Corleone type figure, right? Like to, to stay in that vein. This is this is the benevolent like uh criminal boss who's going to have your back. Um and I don't know, for me this is the part where Robert Prosky like sells me on Leo's seductiveness. Oh, 100%. Yeah. And you yeah. can totally see the like where the turn is, you know, cuz you know, I you understand his his horror at the initial you know statement because in his mind, you know, the idea of trading a kid the way that he would sell a car is you know incredibly distasteful. But you know, he frames it in a way that makes it sound like you know the kid is actually getting a better deal in all of this, and you're getting what you want. The kid will have a better life. You know, it's all you know it can, it can all just work out for you. I have these solutions for you. And of course, it's too good to be true. But like the way, like you said, the way Robert Prosky sells it is just so kindly and disarming. And you know, I, I think Mann said that this is Robert Prosky's first movie. I don't think it was his first acting role, but it was it was his first movie. And he doesn't feel like it's his first movie. Like he is that character, like through and through. Dia, did you ever buy uh, Leo's bullshit? I think I wanted to. And that's the thing is like, you know, throughout the movie, like I couldn't have like, you know, especially after the scene in the diner, I'm just kind of like, you know, I kind of want things to work out for Frank. And the fact that like you go like the whole movie kind of really wanting things to work out for Frank and then, you know, it's not, it can't, um, you know, the world, the world doesn't operate on that for the principle. Um, when like Leo's kind of like, dude, man, yeah, like, you know, we can do these jobs and like, I'll set you up, I'll get you the kid and you can have the house. You've already got the wife. It'll be all set, man. You know, we'll, we, we'll take care of you. You know, when you're here, you're family. And so I really, I think I wanted to buy it, like, especially because like, you know, you think of like Robert Prosky and I'm just kind of like, yeah, you know, you like you helped Robin Williams out and Mrs. Doubtfire <laughs> and like, you know, Miracle on 34th Street in the 1990s. Like, you know, come on, you're a nice old grandpa guy. You know, just because you're, you know, you could be a nice mob boss. And then it's just like, but like the whole time, you know, it's just like, mm, no, this is not, this is, you know, I think the thing that really stuck out with me this time watching it is, um, you know, when he, he basically is like, we can buy you a kid. Yeah. And um, that's interesting given like the kind of, you know, companion scene to this that comes up later. Um, the emphasis on like the, we can buy you a kid. Um, and it's kind of, you know, who, who really owns that kid at this point, um, who really owns Frank's life really kind of gets set up right here is like, as a question, um, by taking on this offer, because we know how these movies kind of work. We know these stories. We know, like when you take the deal, you know, um, no matter how, you know, benevolent it seems, 
at the end of the day, it's, you know, Al Pacino, an interview with the or, uh, uh, devil's advocate saying like, we'll take the bricks out of the briefcase. And it's like, well, it's Satan. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Satan is taking the bricks out for you. Consider that, you know, that's, that's kind of how Leo comes across here. So. Um, yeah. And, and Frank's desperation after that, after that scene where he's just, it, on the one hand, you, you can sort of see, um, and and this is going to be, it, it's kind of driven home. He's in the process of lo- losing his other mentor. He's desperate for yeah. maybe another uh, father figure to be in his life. But the fact that also he doesn't, he kind of doesn't seem to think, what are the hidden costs to this? That yeah. this is kind of a, this is kind of an odd deal. Uh, to make with no like what's in it for leo and the the only possible answer could be uh to further have leverage over frank but frank wants to believe that leo is doing this out of the kindness of his heart uh that lewis that that frank is is that that leo takes care of his people in this way uh by providing like concierge uh black market adoption services well and it's because we get a sense that frank takes care of his people yeah you know like we really like you know the thing i think about the adoption agency scene is that is where frank finally realizes like you know frank frank's got the the three carat flawless diamond ring you know he's got the gold watch he's got the money he's got he drives a fucking cadillac you know like he 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 cannot conceive with all of his financial power that he has, you know, like he's got all of the major credit cards in his wallet, like at a time when that actually meant something kind of, you know, like he should be, there's no, you know, there's no reason, you know, by capitalism says he should not be denied anything that he wants because he can just, you know, he's got money and he will continue to grow money, but then he's completely denied it. Because of his, you know, being a you know an ex-con, you know, <laughs> formerly imprisoned, yeah. um, like, and I think like we don't really dwell on it a whole lot, but like that really does kick off the desperation where it's just like, well, shit, you know, I have to take this deal. It's the only way I can fulfill, you know, my Pinterest board. Yeah, this, um, and yeah, and I guess in some ways also the sense that, um he can only get the things that cash will buy. Right. And that's, and that's kind of the thing. He's not going to be given access to, um, a lot of the things that come with legitimacy. Uh, yeah. And this is just apparently state adoption agencies won't let you, you know, buy a kid at this time. So you got to go through different channels. Even if you tell them, uh, you don't even, you don't even need a white kid. Um, you'll, you'll be happy to adopt, uh, a variety of uh, children <laughs> with slurs. slurs. Yeah, attached to the, them. the casual racism um, he just kind of throws in there, you know, is like, it, in a weird way, it's like he's trying to represent that he's like cool and progressive. It's like, yeah, whatever. I don't care what kind of kid you got. I'll take anyone, literally anyone who is sad and looking for a home. I will take them. But also just by virtue of who he is, and I'm sure just, you know, the way that his brain was wired while being in prison, he can't really think of those people <laughs> other than just in these very, you know, slur-heavy terms. And also, I mean, this is Chicago of this era. Right. Um, just yeah. an incredibly racist uh, You mean to tell me there's racism in the American Midwest yeah. circa 1980? <laughs> <laughs> or even now, really? 
Yeah, I mean, this is this is the thing, right? Like, uh, it is uh, people in the northern Midwest, uh, I think, like, for a long time did like to believe that, like, well, because it wasn't a Jim Crow society, uh, you know, how bad could it be? But then there was just sort of the all the like both explicit and then, uh, you know, just implicit racism uh, that everyone was steeped in and and sort of, uh, yeah, it's Frank is at once you totally believe that he's on the level that like he will raise any child who needs him. You know what I mean? He, that doesn't, it doesn't matter to him. And he knows quite well that like, those are probably children. He, he also says he'll take an older kid. Um, he is for, he is keenly aware of who tends to get adopted out of the system and who tends to be kicked around the foster system. Um, and, so to a degree, like the deployment of the slurs is very knowing, uh, because the system does like it's kind of greased by that kind of racism. Right. It's right? all it's all rooted in devaluing anyone that isn't essentially, you know, a white young child. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, like this is a world where like slurs are never far from any of these characters' lips. Uh the the they they are capable of uh seeing, you know, people uh from like of other ethnicities as people but also you know for sure that they think oh yeah this is my you know brackets slur friend Mm -hmm. uh this is this is kind of how how frank operates um which is is still positively (laughs) progressive compared to what we're gonna get from leo uh in in just a little bit here (laughs) um but the other thing is Frank does get a taste of like what his new position can buy him uh, in that he is going to he has been hooked up with a uh, good lawyer. And by good lawyer, I mean one who can be corrupt efficiently uh, to get Okla out of prison. Um, and we only had one scene with Okla as as sort of, uh, you know, he he meets up with him uh, at the 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 sort of visitors call boxes uh, at the at the prison um and Oakla is still kind of checking in with him and and sort of uh seeing how Frank is doing with with bringing his his dreams to dr- dreams into reality uh but he's he's found a lawyer um who looks uncannily like Jason Schreier uh and uh this this lawyer is going to help him uh, basically pay off the right people to get Oakla just sprung out of jail. And we get this auction scene in the, uh, in the courtroom where he's making his oral argument to the judge for early release. And they're just blatantly signaling. Oh yeah. Um, like it's literally the, just like, a, how many fingers are you holding up for how many thousands of dollars? Yeah. It's, it is so naked um, and so corrupt, and that and that's what it takes. This gets Oakla out immediately. That Frank can, and the thing is, the amount that settled on Frank could have done that any time. Frank's had that kind of money for ages, but it seems like it's through Leo that he's got the lawyer that people will accept the bribe from. Right. Yeah. And this is this is sort of the hierarchy of like these sort of man characters, they get bogged down in this world of like sleaze. Um, Cause in a weird way, you know, Alex, when you're talking about like the safes themselves, we don't know who's being stolen from. Yeah. It doesn't seem, they, they don't seem like villains, but also like they're pe- the sorts of people with like vaults full of riches. We tend not to worry about anyway. 
Um, but what what Frank does seems com- like positively honorable, right? Compared to the legitimized corruption that he's surrounded by. You know, here here's the one glimpse we're going to get of the legal system uh in Chicago in the US and it is it is an auction. Um it is it is uh you know bid and response uh you know calls for for money. Um and he can't even access that unless he's got sort of the approved agent of corruption uh you know a sleazy defense attorney. Yeah. All his uh, money, all his work, none of that matters if the right people don't bless him, don't deem him willing yes. able to get access to the actual mechanisms of power he needs to do any of the things to set up the real life he wants. And tragically it's it's too late for Okla that he gets he gets Okla out of prison. Um and before Okla can can make it make it out really he uh he's he's had a heart condition the the entire film um it he has a some sort of massive heart attack um and you know we we get a a racing to the er uh sequence that man i'm like it is such a convincing emergency room in some way, in a convincing ICU, the way we're just the way we're just sh- shooting through the camera sort of like just wedged in there among the machinery, and we don't even hear what Okla's last words are to um to Frank. He just sort of smiles at him and gestures him close, and then he tries to say whatever he's going to say, and then he's gone. Um, and then I think Khan is so convincing as he stares down the lawyer. Um, as if he's blaming him for like not getting this done fast enough, right? That like that you know, Okla, if he'd just been a little faster getting him out, uh, that that might have been okay. Um, and when the doctor comes out, um, after having tried to administer CPR and and failing, um, the way Frank can't, like, he's just got this like death stare locked on these characters, like he like this this way of uh, again to that point of but i have money you know this yeah. kind of this kind of shock and injustice happen. but i have money now mm-hmm. yeah yeah there's a there's a shot during that sequence like right at the end when the doctor is like do you want to sit down and the camera kind of shuts to the other side and it's like khan's head is essentially obscuring most of the doctor's face and you can kind of sense that it's like James Conn is staring at this man, but he is not seeing him. He is not thinking about him. Like whatever he says to him is yeah. not registering. And he just kind of walks away. And, you know, it kind of says everything it needs to say of just like, you know, his timetable just keeps getting pushed up. Like he sees these things kind yeah. of falling down around him and it's just, okay, I couldn't get Okla out. Yep. So I have to make sure all this other stuff goes according to plan. I love the detail too of like the lawyer seems scared of Frank. Uh he seems like he's worried Frank might swing on him here. The vibe, you know, the, the doctor has such a strong vibe of for him having this moment telling people like hey someone's like your loved one is not going to make it out of here. He's seen every version of the rage and the sadness that is playing out across Frank's face and like you know, for him and in, in the movie of his life, this is just another day, right? This is this is normal. Um, the lawyer is not used to this kind of like 
this environment, this tension. Um, and, and you just get sense, get the sense that like in, in some ways though, they're in this place of routine tragic death. Uh, and the doctor's sort of the master of, of that space. Um, and Frank is, is helpless there. Um, and like literally the next thing is they're picking up their baby from, uh, you know, the vestibule of some apartment building in Chicago and they're heading into, then they, they go out for dinner and, um, I, it's a it's a short scene, but I love it. Uh, just the way he sort of acknowledges that the circle that just happened, right? That yeah. Oakla's gone, and now they have a kid. Um, and the 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 maitre d at the restaurant asks what their kid's name is, and you know he doesn't have a name yet. And she offers, uh, you know, do, do you want to name him after after Oakla? Um, it's such a it's such a sweet moment. Like they like uh. You know, Khan and Weld have really convincing, uh, like committed couple chemistry in some ways in these moments where they're sort of surprised. They, they, they each have moments where they sort of surprise each other with how much the other cares for them. Um, and this is another great moment of like establishing that they are making it work. Um, and we get the, the great code of that scene of him calling the Mater D back over to introduce, uh, introduce him, uh, with, with his kids, uh, you know, proper name. And so we are we are kind of set up uh, for well, there's there's one last complication, which is that in all of this, uh, the Chicago police are now on to Frank. Uh, Frank gets the gets the final confirmation from Belushi. Uh, they they have isolated what the last alarm is. We didn't even say Jim Belushi's in this movie, and like this is like his first yeah. movie. <laughs> Yep, and again, if you didn't know it was a movie set in Chicago, um, that there's the Belushi that right beautiful, there for that you. beautiful you round yeah. Polish face uh, will will <laughs> let you know exactly where you are. Um, yeah, and he he figures out he does sort of the sneakers bit of figuring out uh, what is the magic word to cancel the alarm uh, if it's tripped uh, to to call into security. And with that last piece of information, plus the completion of the uh, burn bar uh, that's going to help them drill through the safe. And I love the close up we get of it, too, of um, it's basically just a big metal tube full of smaller little like pipettes of different metals. I think it's like magnesium and some other stuff. Yeah. 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 And then they're forcing air through it, oxygen through it so that they, they light it with an acetylene torch. Once that shit starts burning, it meets the oxygen and it's being fed by the steady stream of oxygen. The thing, I guess, they were saying it like burns at like nine thousand, uh, nine thousand degrees. Um, just a just a really interesting, weird piece of hardware uh, that, again, like you don't see in a ton of heist movies. A lot of times, you see you get you see either like little like special listening devices or you know special thieves tools. But this is like no to crack this kind of safe. It's it's a job of heavy industry. Um, well, it's because remember, like, there's the the the, the metallurgist who invented this thing. Right. He's like, I can make you something, but it'll be a bitch to use. Yeah. And it ends up being this like 14 foot long metal ball. Oh, and when you finally see them heft it in in the during the heist, it's absurd. It's yeah, it's like a medieval uh like you know pike uh that they are going at this thing with. Um, it just seems incredibly dangerous and and inherently awesome. Um. But right as like the light is green for this heist, um, 
Frank gets another education in the rules, which is that now the cops pull him over and squeeze him. He's already gotten a little bit of warning uh, from uh, Santucci's Detective Arizzi, uh, who's who's sort of warned him that, hey, you know, we could be friends. You should you should work with us. And from Frank's perspective, he doesn't need friends like these. Um, but this time we see them pull him over and uh frank immediately knows what's up he's you know he's he's showing his hands clearly uh did not try to deny them any any excuse to uh to kill him on the side of the road um and they smash his taillight and they drag him in uh to an interrogation room and start working him over and it is clear this isn't just a couple bad apples on the force, like just increasing layers of CPD brass begin <laughs> rotating through that room. It's almost it's almost an SNL sketch sketch of like just more and more detectives piling in there. This fucking clown car of uh, cops, many of whom are real Chicago cops. Um, and on the commentary in here, man uh, talking about how. Uh, some of their consultants would just explain that, uh, yeah, like, of course they beat suspects, and sometimes that worked, but other times you'd have to adopt a, a softer approach. Um, and we see both approaches taken here. He's he's not thrown around the room. He's beaten with a phone book. Um, and then the manager walks and in. And then we... Yeah. And I think this is, this is kind of the crux of the scene. Like, Alice, why did, you want to talk us through, like, the final character who appears and sort of the the pitch he makes to Frank and and what he's laying out about like the rules of the world. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's this very, you know, like, okay, we've spent this time showing you the bad cop routine. And now here's the sympathetic ear. Here's the guy who knows who you are, who understands you, who can see a version of the world in which, you know, you guys go to ball games together, hang out at bars together you know, he understands where you're coming from, but there is just a way of the world that you have to submit yourself to. Otherwise, you know, you end up in situations like this. And, you know, it, it's actually not terribly different from the pitch that Leo makes. You know, it just comes from a different perspective, but and also is shorter. But, you know, the 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 problem is that someone like James Kahn's character is just not going to respond to this at all. Like he does not see any value in them. He does not think they deserve any aspect of what he does. And, you know, he's tired of their shit. You know, he like the whole reason he signed up with Leo was to try and get away from this stuff. And so, you know, he doesn't respond well. And I will say that I, I it sent, I think Santucci is the only one who is not a cop or was not a cop before, you know, playing a cop here, but Santucci has this energy that I would describe as Columbo's Wario. Like he is the same kind of bedraggled sort of like slovenly persona. But whereas Columbo is this incredibly intelligent, you know, forthright, uh, you know, uses his his sort of like slovenliness as like a disarming mechanism to get people to not 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 see who he really is. This person is just that he's just kind of a piece of shit. And he plays it perfectly. Like, he's actually, like, a really, like, you hate him the second he shows up on camera. Well, and it's it's so interesting knowing that, like, this is, Santucci was on, it spent his career on the other side of these conversations. This is what he thinks cops are. Right. You know, this is Santucci doing an impression mm -hmm. of cops as he's known them. And it is such a devastating portrait. Uh, they're just guys with their hand out. Who aren't there to stop crime, but to just profit from like turning a blind eye to it. Um, 
it's it's a great performance uh like especially with that in 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 the in the back of our mind i'll also add uh apparently like on the commentary they talk about him being an actor who suffered from an enormous amount of stage fright which i think contributes to some of the hyperactive almost coked out energy he brings to some of his scenes as well because like he has this desperation that i think works for the character but it is probably being driven by a deep fear of fucking up while the cameras are oh rolling. definitely <laughs> i guess man did like working with him because i think he did take him over to uh play a, a pretty significant role in the pilot of of crime story uh as well uh but yeah but frank's frank's argument here uh just this refusal when he, the way he asks these guys did it ever did it ever occur to you to try working for a living? Did it ever occur to you to try to take down your own scores? It's it's not just it, it's not just this like resentment of having it's actually not the beating he's taking that offends him. He is morally offended by this notion that anyone should feel like they have the right to skim off of his pay. Um that the most dishonest thing in Frank's in Frank's world is taking money to which you are not entitled to taking uh, the the you know, the the wages of someone else uh, to to line your own pocket. And this is, you know, he could pay off these cops. It doesn't even sound like they're asking that much. Right. Like these are these are kind of small timers. They You get the sense that the money they the rent they would charge him he could probably easily afford this is the case they're making like what's the what's the point of resisting the resisting this but frank is motivated by principle that he will he will happily take the beating he will happily risk going to jail uh rather than compromise on this which is that i'm entitled to my pay yeah and you know the the cops themselves are deeply offended by this idea that they aren't working for it that this isn't just the way things is you know like they they don't consider themselves criminals the way that he is so this notion that like why wouldn't you just go out and be the criminal that you already are is like you can kind of see them just kind of you know if there was a fainting couch behind them they might have fallen over on it you know it's just it does not does not compute to them that they are in any way the same as him yeah, and ultimately, like it's we 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 sort of dispense with the cops pretty quickly after this. I think it also makes clear why the police are not going to interfere interfere with a lot of what happens later, and why they're not really a factor in the calculation in the murder and mayhem that's coming, uh, because the cops aren't really here to do uh, like any serve and protect shit. Um, the only the only like work we see them doing conducting an investigation uh is like this you know we heat is years off heat is not going to be a move that like the heat is like 15 16 years off at this point nevertheless we do get this like funhouse mirror version of uh when they've got a tail up on de niro's character in heat and uh ultimately it is just they're just trying to sort of sit on these guys until they they make their move um here the only the, the cops do the same thing but it's only so that they can try to pinch him and extort him. Uh, but this time with like, uh, you know, as retribution for rejecting their offer. But, but we see them sort of following him, uh, with a, a massive, uh, surveillance detail, uh, trying to, trying to catch him. Um, and we see him 
shake them off. Uh, you know, put put the tracker on a on the proverbial bus to Des Moines, uh, and then vanish off to L.A., uh, where he's going to use the burn bar. Um, and here it's just it's complete like silent movie procedural. Uh, once the heist in L.A. kicks off, I love it. Like I I love man's. I, I love how much man loves details like this. I love how much he, he likes just, you know, what's going to be good cinema watching these guys do work for about 10 minutes uh, of them just sawing through a roof, uh, you know, checking uh, voltage on a series of lines coming out of the building and culminating in this absurd pike. That they're going to drive through this, uh, through this, through this uh, safe, um, and it is an incredible thing, isn't it? It really is. One of the things that cracks me up about the scene is um, the balance of the lighting for it, um, because once they get all suited up to like, you know, light this thing out, you know, and start going at the the the, the, the vault door, it is so intensely bright that. Um, now, if you look at a negative that's overexposed, um, you know, it's just clear right through. And like half of this like, scene is overexposed. Like there is like barely any kind of like film data to these shots here. Um, once they start like light the burn bar up, um, it's practically, I mean, it's basically it becomes black and white because that's the only way you can possibly hope to record anything that's not, you know, kind of completely ex- overexposed the, the, ne- the negative. Um, so you get this, like, you know, these intense silhouettes of these big, like, you know, smelting suits and then the kind of the metal, like, melting as they're burning the, bo- you know, burning through the vault door that, like, we can like, get the close-ups and I don't even know how they managed to shoot those because, um, you know, it looks like they're actually at least, like, melting something. I think they um, say on the commentary that they used real safe doors for this stuff. Like, it's not props. Like, yeah, because it, it's it is, you know, if it was if you were, you know, because now you wouldn't film it this way. You know, one, it would either be if you did practical effects, you would control it much better. You wouldn't, um, you know, have so much you would compensate for the light, at least. But here it's just like the light is so intense. It blows out the scene like it's almost like this weird, like, you know, kind of apocalyptic nuclear blast sequence well and and the melting safe takes on this like surreal art quality of like or or like abstract art quality of um we're so zoomed in we barely can see what we're looking at all we see are just the uh both the jets of the air current blowing the molten shit aside and then more of this like hard metal um just being like melting like candle wax uh before this bar it's incredible like it's you don't get a sense of scale you're just staring at this thing slicing through layer after layer of this metal and being cleaned uh as it goes almost like um you know like a dentist drill of just like you know pulling <laughs> the shit aside that's that's uh excess and continuing to work in uh toward toward the vitals um it's it's a, it's a great sequence. I I love the uh the sense of weight this thing has. You can see Khan struggling to to lift this massive thing. Um and the pace of it too. Like the pace of it I think yeah. is so important to why the scene works is that everything feels laborious. None none of it feels like cool guy shit at all. 
Yep. It is totally this just long sequence of intense fire and spikes and people, you know, using fire extinguishers because the sparks are sparking up the carpet below them. And, you know, by the time they finally get to the end of it, it has this very like, you know, like just the you can feel the sweat just radiating off these guys as the door kind of falls over. And it's just you can smell. Oh, yeah, totally. And it smells like shit. Yeah, like you're you're like I'm sitting there. I'm like, uh, how carcinogenic is the air these dudes are breathing at this point? Because it's like I don't know what the hell you're burning, and I don't know what you're melting. But I don't. I suspect having it all vaporized uh, in this in the small room that you're in uh, is probably not good. Um, yeah, and then yeah, the once that sound, once the the drill cuts out and they've extinguished it, and just the dead silence as Belushi goes in through the hole that they've they've opened uh in in the safe um and frank just steps back and sur- surveys it and he's got the look of a guy at the end of a a hard day of work and it's such a easy to identify sentiment of you know when any of us have had like days like that when when you sort of get to the end of it and you're like completely gassed but also really satisfied um that it's a job well done and it's it's all worked out uh, it's so identifiable um, as, you know, we we just kind of, you know, I don't know what it's like to be a high skilled thief, but <laughs> I do know what it's like to have a work day like that. And I, I kind of have the sense of, uh, you know, what, what he's feeling as he sort of kicks back, uh, just covering that grit and grime. Uh, the other thing is, man, has done this a couple places in this film, uh, but it is time to pitch shift the sound effects in the scene to matched up with that sweet sweet tangerine dream soundtrack mm. uh he did it with the traffic whooshing by in the diner scene uh as the as the score came up uh and he does it here as he sets up the triumphant music cue uh to take us out of uh to take us out of the safe and and to the the beach of celebration um my god what but- a scene this is <laughs> just everything about it. <laughs> it is it is James Conn's chest hair. It is the James Conn. It's his back. back hair. And there's a lot of James Conn hair everywhere on this <laughs> spindly little ankles. Yeah, it's the it's the the sort of like <laughs> light proto MTV way they kind of shoot the beach scenes. It's and the Tangerine. Okay, I love the Tangerine Dream score in this movie, but this track in particular is so cheesy and over the top in a way that only 1981 could produce. The guitar solo is piercing and borderline atonal at times, but my God, it it just ties (laughs) the whole thing together. Well, it's great because you have like, you know, in every other 80s movie, we get to this scene and the credits start coming up from the bottom layered over everyone running on the beach yeah you know but no not here not even close <laughs> all you get is that sweet shirtless belushi and james Conn just kind of <laughs> milling around and then you get to the like 30 seconds of love scene that they give you but it's not much of anything and that guitar also- solo will not stop <laughs> and then we get belushi <laughs> just real quick also the uh the love scene the soundtrack is still going. Yeah. The soundtrack Does not is just stop. still rocking. <laughs> also, we can see that he also has that possibly the same soundtrack is playing on a sweet stereo rig mm-hmm. in their living room. Uh, you can see sort of the indica- the the indicator lights on his uh, on his deck. 
Um, it's it's incredible. Like the implication being that like he like he is also living that good life. He is also like, hey Jesse, let me let me turn up the hi fi. You ever heard you you ever some kraut rock? <laughs> <laughs> that right, that right there is the man owns two right CDs: there. Mighty Joe Young and Tangerine Dream. That's it. <laughs> yeah. Um. And so, yeah. So everything, uh, everything seems great. Like it, it, there's just one last thing to do, which is collect their end from to to collect to collect their end from Leo. And uh, this scene goes so wrong because I don't know what what's your reading on this because um I'm not sure Leo necessarily intends all of this to screw Frank like I don't know if he I don't know if he's knowingly trying to screw him I don't think he thinks he's screwing Frank at all I think he thinks he's giving Frank a fucking deal of a lifetime he's like I'm putting you in the ecosystem and you'll have your little place and everything on your little mood board will like you know this is the jigsaw puzzle that fits you in it. He's basically like, offering capital, right? Like he's he's saying, like, yeah. Frank notices that this envelope that should be full of eight hundred thousand uh, dollars only has a tenth of that. He has like seventy, eighty grand in there, and he asks, "Where's the rest?" And to be fair, that's a pretty big delta between what the payday is supposed to be and what he's actually. The envelope carrying. probably should have been the first clue that something was wrong there, because you cannot fit eight hundred grand in that little Manila envelope. <laughs> Uh, but then also, yeah, like, but Frank, but, but Leo's position is that, Hey, I am putting you in on all these legitimate enterprises. Like I, I have taken most of your money and I've invested it as, uh, like legit capital in, in all these ventures. And yeah, yeah, I'm kind of with you. I think, I think Frank thinks it's, I think Leo thinks this is a good idea. Um, and that if anything, Frank should be thanking him uh, for this. But at the same time, I think like, again, this is, this is the weird thing. All of, a lot of us as workers have been like sort of trained to accept this as part of a deal. In some ways, what Leo is offering is a crook 401k. Oh, definitely. Well, I'm I'm taking some of your money, but like it's in the market now. You know, you're going to get it later and it's going to be, you know, it'll it'll be many times over uh, what the initial investment It's going to be was. even better than what I promised you. Yeah. And so a lot of us, you know, in, in some ways, he's offering him the same deal that shit like any any quote unquote good job uh, tends to offer as well. Like, no, you're going to get in the market now. Uh, you're deferring your earnings and we're going to we're going to put you, uh, you know, we're going to give you some capital, and that's gonna that's gonna be your end. What you're really working for is this future. Um, and Frank loses his shit at this, and when Leo's kind of perplexed by this reaction he's getting, uh, Frank basically enunciates both his worldview and I think the the themes of the movie, and we'll we'll listen to this. Uh, speech he he gives to Leo uh, and then continue here. What's that supposed to mean? It means you are dreaming. This is payday. It is over. You know, you, when, when you have trouble with the cops, you pay them off like everybody else because that's the way things are done. But not you, huh? They don't run me, and you don't run me. 
I give you houses, I give you a car, your family. I thought you'd come around. What the hell is this? What? Where is gratitude? Where is my end? You can't see day for night. I can see my money is still in your pocket, which is from the yield of my labor. What gratitude? You're making big profits from my work, my risk, my sweat. But that is okay. Because I elected it to make that deal. But now, the deal is over. I want my end, and I am out. Why don't you join a labor union? I am wearing it. Frank, don't. Do it, Slick. My money in 24 hours, or you will wear your ass for a hat. So, second story, Men of the World Unite, you have nothing to lose but your chains, uh, is, <laughs> is what I'm getting from from Frank here. Uh, Frank, uh, Frank has uh, read his his theory. Uh, he has he has read his marks. Um, and he is not taking the shit from Leo and all he sees, uh, from Leo's deal is another attempt to control and another, another attempt to steal, uh, to steal, like basically to steal Frank's, uh, wages. Do you think that's a, ultimately we're going to see who Leo really is, but let me ask you this. Do you think Frank is right to react as severely as he does? Do you think there's a version of this where he where he's like, you know what, Leo? I do see what you're doing for me here, and I do appreciate it. Let's negotiate this. Do you think that leads anywhere better, anywhere good? Or do you think do you think Frank's basically right that like anyone who pulls this shit ultimately is going to be trying to screw you? I think I mean it comes down to I think Lee I think Frank is right. I think anyone who pulls this shit is trying to screw you. Yeah. Um but you also like, you know, but also like there is from Leo's angle, I can kind of see like, look, you're you're going to get screwed and this is the best offer in town. Um, so you can either take it or fuck you get out of my house. Yeah. And, you know, I think on some level, there is a, a version of this where, you know, Frank could negotiate his way into a better deal and he probably would continue the relationship and and do what he wants to do. But that's just not where he's at and you know he has made clear at times throughout the film that you know he's not really interested in this real estate deal he doesn't really want a long-term deal with leo he's there for a couple of jobs because leo opens doors for him that he would not be able to get otherwise and gives him protection from certain things that he would not get otherwise and you know the thing i think is more maybe up in the air for me is how much does leo actually think that frank is malleable in the way that he wants him to be Versus just a little bit of denial that this person that he is bringing into the fold is actually not manageable at all. And he's just using him as a tool. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, that's a good point. Like, Leo has been trying to figure out a way to basically put Frank on permanent retainer, right? Like, that's his that's his right. goal. Is that's he wants pitch even. Yeah. And to a degree, these two guys have been talking past each other because when... Frank agrees to this deal basically in the heat of the moment following the conversation with Jesse where, where he's, yeah, he's trying to, as you put it, he's trying to speed run his way to his mood board. Right. Um, and it's like, Leo doesn't, has never really believed 
that Frank would stick to those guns, that following getting a kid, getting this house, getting this life, getting let's let's you know be real. That's a really big payday for one job uh, compared to where he started. Um, it's like it's like one of those things where somebody can tell you something, but if you're Leo, you can sort of be- you can sort of believe that Leo thinks, well, surely once this guy gets a taste, uh, he's gonna come around. But he just doesn't understand how Frank is wired. Um, he doesn't understand that like there's this principle at stake. And ultimately, I do think Frank recognizes that like. Also, one of the deal, like, in some ways, what Leo is offering is like vested options, right? Like, oh, if you want to actually realize your end, if you want, if you want that money that is now invested with the rest of the company's money, you have to stick with us and keep working for us and 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 part on good terms. Um, and I do like, ultimately, knowing who Leo is, um. Frank's read on even if Leo doesn't mean to be screwing him at the moment, Frank's read on where these relationships will go is probably pretty right, you know? Oh, extremely. Like he's never going to get out of that. No, and then, you know, it, I think it, we'll come to the scene in a second here, but Leo more or less says as much, you know, you're mine until you're broken, busted or burned, you know? And that's pretty much it. And, you know, it's maybe debatable as to whether he would have been so hardline had Frank been more agreeable to his terms and more interested in sort of being a part of his organization. But, you know, in the end, his view is that when I do something for you, especially to the scale that I've done for you, this is a lifetime contract. And it goes bad so fast here where um, it turns out Frank has brought a gun to Leo's. Uh, He basically uh, is ready to pull that uh, to get out of Leo's house. Um, And then immediately, like basically before he can even get home, uh, Leo has put the word out uh, to, you know, fuck up Frank's crew. Um, and uh, RIP to, to Jim, uh, he, by the time Frank gets back to his uh, car dealership HQ, um, you know, Belushi's character is already being uh, worked over and, and, and beat to shit. Um, and his last act is try to warn Frank uh, that they're already there. And then he gets killed. Um, And we do get this incredibly ugly speech from Leo uh, that I think is, you know, in this in this sort of dialogue, this movie's interested in between like uh, management and labor, labor, um, you know, capital and the proletariat, like Leo goes fully mask off to reveal what's behind all those, you know, perks and treats and rewards uh, that Frank's collected to date. So we'll uh, listen to this incredibly profane and increasingly offensive speech. Uh, This is just this uh, undistilled statement of uh, worldview from this character. Look. I said, fucking look at him. Look at what happened to your friend, because you got to go against the way things go down. You treat what I tried to do for you like shit? You don't want to work for me? What's wrong with you? And then you carry a piece in my house. 
You one of those burned out, demolished wackos in the joint? You're scary because you don't give a fuck. But don't come on to me now with your jailhouse bullshit because you are not that guy. Don't you get it, you prick? You got a home, car, businesses, family, and I own a paper on your whole fucking life. I'll put your cunt wife on the street to be fucked in the ass by niggers and Puerto Ricans. Your kid's mine because I bought it. You got him on loan. He is leased. You are renting him. I'll whack out your whole family. People will be eating them for lunch tomorrow in their wimpy burgers and not know it. You get paid what I say. You do what I say. I run you. There is no discussion. I want you work until you are burned out, you are busted, or you're dead. You'll get it. You got responsibilities. Tighten up and do it. Clean this mess up. Get him out of here. Back to work, Frank. I own the paper on your whole fucking life it has to be one of the most chilling things I've ever heard. It's, it's a phrase that has stuck with me. I think when I first saw this, um, I was freelancing for a million different people uh, at that point. And I <laughs> had, you know, I would had my own toxic relationships with, uh, you know, paymasters and such. And that feeling of um, not just that, not just the sense of like employers being able to pull that shit, but also the sense of being perpetually vulnerable because your paperwork will never be in order. It can't be in order. Nothing will ever be fully buttoned up. It feels like um, you're always vulnerable to some angle of financial attack. Uh, What Leo says here, you know, when I first saw this movie in like the mid 2000s, early 20 teens, um, it hit me like right between the eyes. Like it was such a perfect statement of, how it feels like the world could sometimes be uh, when you were financially vulnerable. Um, I'm I'm curious, like how it all ends for you. I remember it's the first time I saw this movie. It was um, for a film class in college. And I remember just like, we were all drinking and sitting around watching it uh, after class. And I was just like, got to that line and just like man that line is just so fucking ill like i wish i could just drop that on a motherfucker just once in my life and mean it because like that is some cold shit in ways that like you know only capitalism really allows for something that cold and like it's just like damn like it's not even ending someone it's just like it's like no i own the paper on your whole life just like fuck like Everything that's yours technically is has never been yours. And it's true. You know, that's the, yeah. the really the really murderous part of it is that like he is not exaggerating. You can't argue with it. Yeah. <laughs> and and this is the thing, like, you know, everything Frank has built is um I don't know, maybe it's every everything he's built certainly since he hooked up with Leo has been an illusion that none of it's really his. Um on a deeper level we saw that like he couldn't earn enough on his own to unlock these things either like to a degree nothing he could do would ever be owned free and clear um and sort of the sense of as long as there's a leo he's never going to be out from under it does set in motion the uh denouement of the film uh which is 
kind of his like his realization. This is this is the sort of the irony to the speech. Leo is also given Frank the key to defeating Leo, uh, which is that <laughs> can't can't have uh, your life taken away from you if there's nothing in your life, right? Um, if you just dismantle the entire structure. Yeah, and in some ways, like you know, again, this is um, he is Kaiser Soze, right? Like this is he basically does the thing that's going to be alluded to. Uh, in the usual suspects in the nine days where like confronted with this sort of extortion, uh, he destroys his life from within. Um, and I mean, really scorched at the stop. It, it starts with um, a really, you know, hard final scene between him and uh, Jesse as he sort of gives her, as he sort of explains how badly things have gone, how it's all turned. Um, and now she's got to go away. And then you see him over the course of that scene completely close off from her um, and become this like cruel, impassive figure uh, that in some ways he he, he was at, at his worst in this film um, and sends her and the kid away uh, with with his original partner uh, and stacks of cash to sort of keep them hidden long enough for him to settle up affairs in Chicago. And then. Okay, this is where we also start getting some peak 1980s Michael Mann. Like, talk about mm -hmm. a guy who who knew what he liked from the start. Not enough that we've seen him do this. When he leaves his house, um, he's got to blow it up. And we're going to see that, that explosion <laughs> repeated multiple times from multiple angles uh, in slow motion. It is, it is such a ridiculous, like, it's like you're in the middle of this, like, almost art film in places. <laughs> And just out of the blue, it's like Miami Vice just arrived in the middle mm -hmm. of this movie. And I think it's completely clipped my mic just remembering that scene and laughing. <laughs> it's it's a it's so good though. It's such a beautiful ex house explosion sequence that like does it. It's it's gratuitous, but also you need that. Like you need this scene to punctuate just how thoroughly Frank is detonating his life. <laughs> and then they do it again. Yeah, and he goes to the okay. bar. <laughs> like, it's going to be even slower. Uh, I love how the, the, the bar explosion is so heavily undercranked. It is the choppiest explosion, I think, yep. in like the history of film. It's like, you know, watching a quick time video over like 56K modem. Like... It's it's beautiful and, and like the, and like that the the audio effects have gotten away from the actual video so like you're hearing right? the end of the explosion like halfway through it the glass tinkling uh, yes uh, yeah as if you're still hearing it shattering uh, in the blast um, but wait there's more uh, because we have to go down to rocket cars uh, for for the end of the sequence uh, where we got one more series of explosions as he burns down his car lot. Um, and well, it's great because he's burning every car individually, too. Yeah. Again, meticulous. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Like, again, like it, it, it speaks to his fastidiousness and his purposefulness. And just each car is getting burned by hand. When I, and I think the other thing here, too, is it, it is kind of ridiculous, but also. Um, so the question is, like, why is he doing this? And I think, like, my read on Frank is he has to destroy the stuff so that he knows there's nothing to go back to. Right. Like that he can't even allow himself 
the possibility that, well, I could survive this confrontation with Leo and escape with all these possessions. Like that he feels like if he allows himself that out, he can't do what he needs to do. He can't like if he allows himself that out, he's also leaving himself these vulnerabilities. And so before he can do this thing, he has to truly uh, remove everything he's built from the equation. Including um, the stuff that like Leo had nothing to do with, you know, there's a yeah, lot of yeah. that stuff that was pre-existing, and he's just like, nope, it is total erasure of this existence because I, I, if I try and have this again, I'm going to end up in the exact same situation. Yeah. Um. And the last thing we see is he, he destroys his mood board. He destroys his mm-hmm. collage. Just leaves it there on the on the asphalt as the cars burn. And then he goes to. A really unassuming suburban house. Uh, it's very Hyman Roth in The Godfather 2. Uh, he sneaks into Leo's house and it's kind of chintzy middle class shit everywhere. Um, I will say, just going back a couple of scenes, Yeah, I love Leo's basement. The, the wood paneling, the, the aquarium, the, you know, borderline shag carpeting. Like that is my like ideal of an American basement. Well, it's so funny because like that was like looking at that and like thinking about my stepfather who was like, you know, wealthy 80s asshole. Mm -hmm. That was his basement. Yep. And like he everything like he like his his whole life was leading up to that fucking basement. And it's just like seeing I was like, yep, that is that is Leo's basement. Yep, Mm -hmm. This is his vision of American splendor. (laughs) Yeah. His his collage uh, is uh, his collage is a Margaritaville clock. Uh, hung above a dry bar in a basement, um, and yeah, just and apparently his, his his the good life is also hanging out with your coworkers at your house, um, late into the evening. Uh, I don't even know what's. I guess I guess his house is under guard, right? That's the implication. That that was the implication I got is yeah. that they're there because he knows that there's someone out there who wants to kill him. But also, it does have this vibe of here I am just. Another quiet evening at home with Leo and his henchmen. Um, he's he's kind of sitting there reading the reading the paper uh, with his with his goon as uh, as Khan walks in and just quietly like waits, acclimates, and uh, then unleashes. And we get really the only action sequence in this film in terms of like uh, you know gunplay. Um, you know, most of this film has been a procedural about the, the, the craft of safe cracking. Um, and here we get a really brief, uh, but memorable explosion of violence, which I guess is another sort of man trademark, right? Like, you know, as, as memorable as the, the massive shootout in, in, at, in heat is, it's also kind of an oddity in his films. Uh, his, his films tend to have like really brief, intense episodes of violence that again, are, are given a sort of procedural, uh, sensibility of like, you know, Frank is going to clear room to room uh, until he finds Leo, execute him, and then he's going to go settle up with the rest of Leo's gang. Um, I don't know. Everyone, I think exce- everyone except for Leo's incredibly put upon, and I'm going to say probably depressed wife who is just sitting there watching TV, sees sees Frank, and it's just like, whatever. <laughs> that's got to be his wife, right? That's got to be his wife. Yeah, that's that's how I read it. And then his, his wife is just, you know, even she's just like kind of you fuck know, Leo. She has realized she's part of her, you know, like she she's bought into this kind of, you know, prison lifestyle, and she's just kind of like, yeah, I don't care. Yeah, if you kill him, you kill him. 
But I also I, I think it's interesting. Like we, you know, this this doc this this sequence is backwards. Frank kills Leo first. Right? Yeah, he knocks out the goon, yeah. and then he just straight up kill like straight up mercs Leo. Yeah, and then cleans up. Yeah, he chases the one guy out into the yard, and then Dennis Farina shows up with. I don't know if it's a machine gun or a shotgun or no, something. I think, much I think he's got an AR, yeah. Okay, yeah. And, he, yeah. He, you know, he shows up and he kind of clips him. Uh, he clips Farina. And then, you know, the other guy turns around, like, after fleeing. It's like, okay, I guess I'm going to try and fight him and just get shot straight in the chest. And then Farina shoots Frank. Yep. But he doesn't kill him. And then Farina, while he's tr- struggling to get back up, just gets just gets murdered. Yeah, and we get a great uh, you know, Frank really times the active reload perfectly uh oh, in yeah. this sequence. <laughs> uh he, you know, engages engages Farina, uh puts a round into him, uh ejects the ejects the magazine, slams it in as he turns on the guy who's still trying to hobble away escaping, guns him down, uh and then yeah, finishes off uh Farina. Um and I'm curious, like, how you read this. Like, I think um, the weird thing for me is that when I you, you, look at it in real time, first time I saw it, it's like, yep, this is the tragic ending. Like, uh, Frank's going to be mortally wounded by that shot, right? Um, the, this this was a one-way ticket. Uh, that's why he goes after Leo first. Uh, you know, he is, he is there to assassinate this guy first. No matter what else happens, like, Leo's got to die. And then he will worry about getting his way back out of this. Uh, through the rest of the gang, uh, but my assumption was like when he when he eats that round and he gets spun around um, in slow motion in a way that you can't help but think of Sonny Corleone getting gunned down at the toll booth. I'm like, okay, yeah, uh, Frank's dead. Like this is gonna be this is gonna be the ending of this uh, sort of vengeance mission. And uh, then it sort of seems like the implication here at the end is like, no, he's fine. Uh, he's he got he had he, something he got on his chest. That sort of blocked the the shot that that Farina threw at him, and so like you know yeah. he got a little bit of the buck shot, but that was about it. Yeah, and I'm like, it was funny. I was listening to the commentary, and what's funny is first of all, what is palpable is how much James Caan loves this movie, um, yeah, and how proud he is of it. And if you're not clear on that, just follow him on Twitter uh, and watch how often he talks about like, man, you know, it was a good movie, Thief. Um, He's and right. in the James Kant's on Twitter. Oh, he yeah. Is. And he's mostly tweeting about Thief. <laughs> and he, every, he ends every tweet with end of tweet. Every single one has that the, phrase in there. He got the meme and he knows one meme and that's it. Like send tweet. Almost. Yep. He gets it wrong, but that's it. <laughs> it's wonderful. Um, but it is so funny to listen to the commentary and he's like, you know, he's talking to Michael Mann, you know. I'll bet Frank, having done all this, I'll bet he went and found Jesse and his son. And it just, it cracks me up that, like, it's a bit like uh, Samuel Jackson refusing to acknowledge that Mace Windu's dead. You know what I mean? That, like, I don't yeah. know, he could still be alive. There's there's a bit of uh, James Caan hoping that Frank pulled it together somehow after the credits rolled, right? That, like, we get that, we get that picture of, like, you know, the vest stopped the bullet. Uh, he's fine. He, he, he has survived. He has won. Um, everything about this film, though, suggests this is a hollow victory. It's a tragic victory. And uh, if Frank is not actually dying, 
his life has nothing there. There's, there's no life left for him. Um, and it's just, it's so funny to me that, that James Khan is like, yeah, but in my head canon, uh, Frank and Jesse lived happily ever after. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, to me, it is a tragic ending no matter what. And I, as much as I, I'm sure that in, in James Khan's mind, he has written the script for thief two. Um, you know, that that's it, my take on it was yours, which is that, you know, he walks away and he is walking away into the emptiness of whatever is left in front of him. Um, the, the one thing that is interesting to me about this, and there's a lot of parallels I think you can draw in this movie to heat. Yes. Uh, and, and most of them are specific shots, you know, like shots, scenes that are kind of done in a different way in heat uh, just by virtue of the story needing some differences. But you know, like there's a lot of stuff that he revisits in Heat that's in this movie. And one thing in particular is this notion of the revenge mission at the end. In Thief, Khan gets his revenge. You know, like he it's not he he throws everything away because the thing that matters to him is making sure that they're safe. He these people die and nothing else is important. Whereas in Heat, you know, and it, it's De Niro's undone by the fact that he still needs this kind of revenge against Wayne Grow. And so, you know, it's just kind of a different spin on the same notion of, well, everything else in my life, you know, it, it kind of focused down on this. And in Heat's case, you know, if he had just thrown that away, he could have had the life that Frank wanted. But in the end, he couldn't stop himself. Whereas here, Khan threw away the life so that he could get his revenge and make sure that the, you know, uh, Jesse and the kid were safe. Yeah, it's that's I guess that's the other thing that surprises me about uh, Thief so much is like how much he is this direct companion piece to it in in some ways, like Daenerys character feels almost like the same character or maybe the same character, but if things had gone a little bit different and he really did go another 20 years thinking he could pull this all out at the end. But yeah, it's it's funny comparing these two films uh, because, yeah, this is such a it anticipates so much in in heat, but it does arrive at this completely. Um, these characters are are, are sort of uh, tragically faded, uh, but for like very different reasons uh, that there there's kind of no escape uh, that e they, they have slightly different codes and each of them leads to this. Um, kind of bleak ending where you know like frank frank may have nothing uh and ultimately de niro is is killed like frank frank has to give up everything in order to perform and de niro turns out in the end can't adhere to his code and yeah. has to go settle accounts so here's the the last part of this which is um one of the things that may be so interesting to talk about michael mann's films is uh I don't know what's my favorite film of his because there there's a long list of Michael Mann films that I feel I can make a full throated case for it being Michael Mann's best film and therefore one of the best American films ever made. Um, Thief is one of those. Like, I think I do not think there is better character work really to be found in uh in 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 man's filmography i don't think there's an equivalent to the diner scene uh elsewhere in man's work i don't like i think if you compare even this in his other diner scenes yes i don't think the heat diner scene holds a candle to this one like you can watch it's them side by good. side no yeah like there's there's nothing to match 
the like the writing and the performance that we see from uh Khan's character and Wells' character. I don't think there's a villain uh like Leo in in man's uh filmography. And I don't think Thief is at times didactic, didactically so, in terms of it's like very clear uh you know master thief got his marxism on and is is ready to uh fight for uh fight for the value of his, of his labor uh but at the same time i think that's kind of to the to the movie's benefit the way it like takes this most individualistic of anti-heroes you know the the master criminal and still does map out the ways that um this is a character that does need people and also is still vulnerable to the same currents in society that the rest of us are. Uh, you know, this notion that even an outlaw can't escape uh, the reign of middlemen and corrupt officials and unjust systems. And I am not sure there are many movies uh, that enunciate that quite as clearly as Thief. Um, and in some ways, I think, you know, maybe later in his in his career, I think man maybe does start to give in a little bit more to uh, this notion of the individualist hero um, and and loses a bit of sight of of that sort of um, class critique that is that is such a such part and parcel uh, of, of this film. And, and so like de- like depending on when I depending on when you get me, there are days when I will absolutely argue, oh, Michael Mann's best film, it's Thief. And watching it here, I think there's things in this movie that you just do not get elsewhere from from man. I'm curious where you, where y'all rate it. No, I think you're absolutely right. I think there's a lot about this movie because even watching it, like you know, watching it again like now, having like you know, God, like 15 years of other film in between the time I first watched it, and it's just like, I think it's still like it had it had the capacity to surprise me, um, you know. And usually movies like, you know, on the repeat watchings don't necessarily do that for me, especially ones that I've like, you know, from 1980, like heist film, like not really something I expect to I anticipate surprising me and shocking me from, especially from a director whose work I've seen so much of, you know, like, like I think we've all gone through <laughs> the, the Michael Mann collection at this point and just like, you know, having done that. I can see all of the Michael Mann pieces here. I can see exactly how this is, you know, textbook Michael Mann in some ways. But then there are those moments where it's just like, whoa, you, this has, this has like teeth to it that you have worn down Michael Mann. Um, yeah. I think, and I don't know if that's necessarily just time or money. Like, you know, like I know, like Michael Mann makes a movie now, it is much more expensive. It has much more, you know, strings attached well, to it. It's so funny. So, listening to the commentary, it is striking. So, the commentary, I think, was recorded in the mid 90s. And it's shocking the degree to which he and Khan are both wistful about, like, talking about one, how hard it is to be even allowed to shoot a scene like the diner scene. Like, one, they're hard to shoot to, to get to capture those performances and to get the shots right and get the editing and pacing right. It is, it's harder than it looks. Um, which is surprising me. I, I tend to think that, you know, well, with a good enough script, like how could like with that script, how could that scene not be amazing? But so much is about the performance you get and, and the way the shots are, are composed. Uh, but the other thing is that con and like 
at the end of that scene, Khan remarks, he's like, that's probably my, the best, the, the best scene in my career. And man kind of agrees. He's like, it might be the best scene in mine. Um, and Khan says, you know, I wish it happened more than once in a career. And man kind of agrees. And the funny thing is in the mid nineties, you know, man was really close to being one of those directors who was basically able to write his own ticket, right? Like he mm-hmm. was, wasn't like never, I don't think he had the complete carte launch, uh, that, that, uh, some directors have enjoyed, but, was a big time director, had access to a lot of resources, a lot of budgets, a lot of stars who wanted to work with him. Um, and even there, um, there is this sense of it is hard to make a movie this thoughtful and it is hard to create space for scenes like this, uh, in, in Hollywood. And, you know, Khan in his entire career feels like he's, he's struggled to find roles that, that allowed for this kind of thing. And so I think there's, there's an element of one, you know, I think a lot of, Directors, when they're still discovering their style, sometimes their earliest and rawest expressions of it remain the most interesting. When you, when you say teeth, I think that's a great way to describe it, uh, that there's a, a sharpness and pointedness that does get filed down and does get uh, a little bit muted by finesse and, and technical expertise. But, but also, it is, you know, hearing that commentary, even for someone like Michael Mann having the career he had, um, it's hard to make movies like this. And that was kind of dismaying to hear because however hard that was in 1996 or whatever, um, <laughs> it has to be infin- inordinately more difficult now. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I, like I imagine that a lot of where man went was kind of informed by the experiences he had immediately following this movie. You know, he made the keep, which was a movie that was definitely a much bigger budget production, but also got hacked to shit by the studio that he, you know, that was making it. Um, you know, he produced Tune in next month for the thief, uh, yeah. for, for the keep with, uh, Dia, you're in for that, right? Oh, hell yeah. yeah. Oh, I'm all the way in for that. Yeah, well, I love it. So keep. check out, check us out next month for the keep. Good luck. Finding but, but then, you know, he moves on to Miami vice, which is, you know, kind of it, when you point to the excess of the eighties and kind of the, you know, just the, the 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 aesthetics and the 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 fictions that were produced during that time. Like Miami Vice is one of the first things you point to. Like it is like so emblematic of the time. And I feel like a lot of his career after that, you know, you can you can kind of point to stuff like The Insider and say, like, okay, there are definitely movies where he has found really interesting human stories that do not require, you know, in, intense action and, you know, like ridiculous budgets. But, you know, I think Heat and a lot of the stuff that he made after that is and especially like as he started moving a lot of his his more contemporary movies to L.A., yes. I think you can see a difference in how he approached stuff and how his stories were shaped. And look, I love Michael Mann's L.A. movies. Nobody shoots L.A. at night like he does. But I think there is a very marked difference between the L.A. stuff that he was making following this and, you know, something like this, which is set in Chicago, a place that he was raised in, a place he just knew. Manhunter as well, uh, part yeah. of it. even though very little of the movie takes place in Chicago, it's one of it's Chicago is a major part of that uh, film. Um, no, I, I I agree. Um, I think, and also on the kind of, like this is so so of a piece. It's so informed by man's experiences growing up uh, in Chicago and and Khan being from. Uh, you know, apparently a rougher part of Brooklyn uh, back when, uh, you know, there were there were there were some really dicey parts uh, of Brooklyn and both of them sort of being uh, in, in touch with with this 
w- with these places and these types of characters. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I think the LA period does, it has a very different texture. I yeah. think when we get to it, I also think, you know, on ask me on the right day, I will happily make the case that those are his best films. Um, mm-hmm. I like, I, I will go, I will, uh, you know, I, I, I can be convinced to die on the hill for collateral as his best film, uh, which is, <laughs> which is kind of a weird statement for a lot of people. But I, I genuinely think in terms of a movie about a relationship, I, I'm not sure he made a better one than that. Um, but yeah, there's, there is something different here, uh, that, that his later films never quite have this quality again. Um, I really thought for a second there you were going to be the first person in the world to go to bat for L.A. Takedown. Oh, do we need to? Do we need to see? At LA some point, Take we Down? need to watch L.A. Takedown because it is something. <laughs> do we need to see his TV movies? Do we need to watch? Man, there's Crime Story. There, there's the pilot of Crime Story, which like supposedly he didn't direct. He's sort of the showrunner at that point, but like his fingerprints are all over that pilot. Uh, it's basically a two-hour movie. Um. You know, you've got the pilot of Miami Vice, uh, which is, man, him just in full music video mode. Oh, yeah. Um, And I'm so excited to see the keep. Um, And then, man, he brings that music video aesthetic to Manhunter for sure. Oh, all the way. Well, that's like that's when he starts hooking up with Dante Spinotti, um, cinematographer. Uh, And that like. I feel like with with Spinotti, like that's when man really starts being able to realize some of his like his interests um, more more keenly. He has these very specific shots that he really loves. Um, I think about the the staircase, the 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 top, the bird's eye view of the staircase running sequence in in Thief. Yeah, and and then think about okay, we have that, but then you go to Manhunt, Manhunter, and like. You have the scene with Will Graham running around the amphitheater, like the staircase and running down the stairs and that and like how he is like, okay, well, I can't make this. I want to make it. I want to make an interesting staircase running shot. Um, How do I do that? And like, this is what he, you know, this one, he can go with symmetry. He's like, because my also loves his fucking symmetry. Um, But then. Uh, you know, later he's like, okay, now I have access. I have these other photographers. I have the, you know, the money and the access and and the capacity to shoot the scene that I always had in my heart. And he keeps like revising these scenes that he has in his heart that he just wants to make, um, which I absolutely respect. Like I have shot the same fucking scene shot like hundreds of times trying to get the one that I always saw in my head. Um, and always kind of missing it. And so it's like, next time I'm going to do it. Well, um, and, and I think that culminates in Miami Vice, um, which I remember. So I watched the theatrical cut and I thought that movie was like borderline unwatchable. I hated the theatrical cut. Um, and then someone convinced me to give it another shot uh, and check out the director's cut. And th- this person like fully argued that like, no secret masterpiece. And I was like, that's, that's crazy talk. That's, there's no way, there's no way that piece of shit is a secret masterpiece. But you know what? It's a secret masterpiece. Okay. Uh, because. Yeah, I'm going to have to watch it. Uh, because from the first, he's like, man, you know, the shots I couldn't get 20 years ago. Now no one can stop me because the digital cameras have improved a lot between this and collateral. Uh, and finally, I can convince somebody 
to let me just play around the speedboats uh, <laughs> off the coast of Florida for just hours and hours and hours. Um, and it's ridiculous. It's it's barely justifiable. But uh, damn, if it isn't like watching this guy just trying to dial in on these visions that he's been chasing for years and years. And there's always that risk of like, sometimes you just need to like, you know, the, the Lucas approach is he keeps trying to sort of, uh, you know, go back and revise the original work. Um, what man keeps doing is he's trying to reimagine like, well, what if I made it today with like all the tools and resources I can bring to bring to bear. And that culminates in Miami vice. And I think Miami vice might be, uh, is that the last one before like Public Enemies and uh, Black Hat? I think so. Yeah. I think you're right. It is, yeah. Because that kind of marks the. I, I think that is where a decline really, really does begin. Um, I I don't think those. I don't think those movies are are very good. Um, I guess we'll see uh, if they improve on on revisiting. Uh, but I, I think both of those are, are pretty critical misses uh, for him and, and lack a lot of the a lot of the heart we find in, in these earlier films like Thief. Um, but yeah, so that is but that's Thief, um, a movie that I think holds up incredibly well and is such a shockingly strong uh, like first feature effort and such a sort of statement of purpose um, from from man uh, that, you know. Across the rest of this filmography, I think a lot of what he's playing with in this movie uh, is, is going to resonate. Um, but I, but I do like the directness that the thief has, um, and I, you know, I, I, I treasure it. I wish there were more like it. Yeah, for sure. Like it's, I, I, I hesitate to call it my favorite man movie because there's a few of those that I could very easily consider. But like, it's always in that conversation. And for your first feature film to be a thing that is held up like that, you know, decades after the fact, and you know, it's got to be pretty special. And I think it is. Yeah. No. It's 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 um, it's just as good as when I was getting drunk with my college friends <laughs> and watching that the first time. Like. Yeah. yeah, I think in some ways for me better uh, because these- I, yeah, I was gonna say I was, I was just thinking like like actually I think it's better because now we're not all just guffawing at the Tangerine Dream soundtrack and like when we secretly all knew along that it was a fucking banger. Yeah, this is uh, this is like did, I think this movie famously got like a Razzies award or something for worst soundtrack and it's like you fools, you know nothing. Um, got yeah, mo- no, like it, it, I I can't imagine a better soundtrack for this. So you know one of the things I was like thinking I was like I was like would anything would a traditional soundtrack make this better would a contemporary you know like you know you know greatest hits you know 80s compilation work better what would work better and i think no tangerine dream actually nails it for this um in a way that it i don't think necessarily does in um uh manhunter or is that, is that tangerine dream i think it is i think it is yeah um so i might agree with that i think there are times there is a heightened quality to Manhunter that at times like everything becomes can be a little bit too much. Uh, but it's a Hannibal Lecter movie, man. Like, you know, sometimes mm-hmm. you gotta let the dogs off the oh, leash. No, because Manhunter was Shriek back. That's right. Wait, sorry. Is it not Tangerine Dream? I don't think so. The right, Keep well, well, definitely is. But yeah, I'm not. I, yeah. yeah, he definitely is. Um, I will say like. The only movie that uh, like Tangerine Dream, I think, have a bigger impact on and and genuinely like get credit for probably like substantially making the movie is probably Risky Business, um, which is 
when's the last like I watched that for the first time uh like this spring and I was I was floored because it was very much like imagine Ferris Bueller's day off made by Michael Mann. Mm-hmm. Um and I was like this this is amazing. It is it is the thief of 80s teen movies. Um right down <laughs> to the Tangerine on Tangerine Dream soundtrack. Uh so maybe we'll get to that in the fullness of time, but in the meantime, uh Stick around with us. Uh, at some point, we will get to. We're going to be working our way through man films, uh, you know, at a steady but leisurely clip. Um, I think next month we're going to try to reconvene to talk about the keep. Uh, yes. And this one, I feel, I feel like Patrick might appreciate watching this one. I think. Oh, we got to get Patrick. For I that. think totally. the keep has strong clapic energy. Yeah. So this uh, that'll be, that'll be my introduction uh, to to Michael Mann for for Patrick uh, is just hey I've, I heard you like schlock horror directors well um, though I've never seen it I've just assumed it's schlocky because like the little compressed YouTube videos I see of it uh, all kind of look like shit uh, and he's basically disowned this film but um, here's what I've been unclear to get from you before we go okay so people can get ready for you know tracking it down in the month between. Is the keep good or is it just weird? Dia, you and I might have differing opinions on this one, but I will say for my so you go ahead. So I think um, the the keep suffers from a number of technical issues um, that keep it from achieving greatness. Yeah. It's a movie that I desperately want to see the three hour director's cut of. Um, because only because I'm trying, there's a lot of spaces in that movie where it kind of leaps around and you can sort of imagine the things that might've made those scenes better and those parts better. But also at the same time, it's got a real rubbery villain and some real (laughs) weird shots. And Scott Glenn is in that movie for no fucking reason. And it's, it's, it's a mess, but I think it's kind of a glorious mess. All right. So uh, stay tuned for more glorious messes uh, from the Waypoint Plus feed uh, as we continue watching uh, some cool movies and continuing the Michael Mann project. Uh, but that will do it for Thief. Uh, Dia, Alex, thank you so much for uh, joining me on this journey. And let's let's face it, like encouraging each other to finally make this absurd effort happen. Um, finally, we've ta- we we can take all these all these conversations we've had uh, as random asides, and and finally give uh, you know help them achieve their destiny as content. Um, Yay, capitalism! <laughs> woohoo! I am very excited to tumble down the manhole with all of you. All right, uh, so we'll continue manhunting uh, next month on the Waypoint Plus feed, and at some point we'll have a real name for these uh, movie podcasts. But in the meantime. All I can say is thank you so much uh, for for your support. Uh, it makes it possible for us to do podcasts like these. It makes it possible for me to uh, knock off work to watch two hours of Michael Mann commentary uh, in the middle of a week. Uh, so uh, thanks so much. It, it means the world to us. And, and hopefully you continue to enjoy uh, the Waypoint Plus podcasts um, until next until next month. Um, we don't have a really catchy sign off for the waypoint plus stuff uh so i'll i'll just say uh fuck capitalism fuck all the people who own the paper on your whole fucking life go home or burn it down if that's what you need to do
yeah, there's my there's my local. All right, if everyone can go to time.is. Mm-hmm. Let's clap in on 30. Okay. Awesome. Damn, that was clean. Yeah. That's how we like it. Uh, and let me just pull up B here, just, in, just for basic reference info. All right, cool. And, uh, yeah, for a movie I know so well, I'm incredibly poorly prepared for this because I was too <laughs> caught up, like, reading and watching shit about Thief. So now we're going to kind of wing it. Hopefully I don't fuck it all up and make this podcast go three hours. All right. I've got as much time as you need, so. Okay. Um, God, I think for final production, I'm also going to want... There's definitely some of these speeches that, like, I'm gonna, we're going to need Kato, I think, to sample. Um <laughs> Because like there's just I, I think sections of the movie that if you don't if you haven't heard the speech or the dialogue then like someone's not going to land so we'll have to leave uh, space for that yeah if you can just put the entire ten minute uh, cafe sequence in there <laughs> oh and God. then also, yes. the, also yes. the part where Robert Prosky is just saying the worst shit imaginable to oh him while he's God. hovering over his head <laughs> yeah uh, those yeah those are probably my those are probably the two speech oh yeah and you also need um you need uh, Frank's uh, theory of labor surplus of value uh, that he gives <laughs> yes. to uh, Leo. Um, so yeah, three speeches uh, okay. minimum for this for for this episode. All right, here we go. We haven't named this. Po- <laughs> We're renaming this podcast. The script I have is old. Okay. <laughs>